since 1987. Do you know where Freddy is? There's no waking up from this nightmare. Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors, rated R. Now showing at a theater near you. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Pod and The Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. Uh, Jerry is not with us tonight. He has a few things he had to take care of at home and unfortunately um, couldn't make it in at the last moment, uh, but he is actually working on a lot of really cool things right now for our Elm Street episode. So we'll, you know, thankfully he'll be doing some work on that, but I am not alone because nobody wants to hear me just talk for a long time. Uh, we have a pair of great guests tonight. Um, let's welcome back to the show. He has sat in on the co-host chair when we've needed him. He's joined us for our screen uh, script readings. Um, you've seen his work at Dread Central, Manor Vellum, and Bloody Disgusting, where he has a fantastic article out on Freddy Krueger and the sins of the past, which I believe we're going to be referencing here tonight. Let's welcome Brian Kuyper back to the show. Yeah, very glad to be here. It's been a little while. Uh, it has been a little bit. That's fine. That's fine. It's been I've really been enjoyed enjoying listening to the show. Thanks, uh, man. Great guest. Lots of great stuff going on. Yeah, I think I'm gonna like I, I mean to like post like here's everyone that's been on our show so far, but then I get super lazy and just watch hoarders instead. Yeah. So <laughs> all right, it's understandable. Um, and we have making her first appearance on our show. Uh, we have Cynthia. Oh, but let's try that again. We have Cynthia. Wow. We have <laughs> Cynthia Pelayo. She's an award-winning poet and author of Loteria, Santa Muerte, The Missing, Poems of My Night, and the upcoming Children of Chicago to be released by Agora Press in 2021. Um, you can actually find examples of her poetry and her fiction at cinepaleo.com, and we're going to link to that site in our notes. There's a lot of her work that you can read up there right now. So Cynthia, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love this franchise, so I can just talk about it like, for hours, and my husband just gets sick of hearing it, so it's nice to talk to someone different about well, it. We will hold you to that, so um, <laughs> this is probably, out of all the franchises, my wife's least favorite series of horror oh, movies. Wow. Like, she just <laughs> will not watch a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, so it's, in, you know, that's so... You know, your my wife and your husband could like hang out in a chat room while we talk about this yeah. one another. My wife would sit in on that too. Oh, my wife yeah. is my wife is not a horror fan at mm -hmm. all. I think she's seen Scream, mm -hmm. and I forced her to watch Halloween, but she she wasn't very happy about that. I would say my wife tolerates horror movies. Okay. Uh, you know, more so than being a giant fan. She tolerates them. And then if we watch too many in a row, she's like, all right, we need a break with something else. So yeah. I'm very lucky in that regard. She's a huge Bigfoot fan, however, which <laughs> interesting. Um, my, my husband gets so like, he's not a horror person at all. And again, like that's all I watch is just horror mm -hmm. movies our shows and if I get too much like if I get him to watch too many 
mm-hmm. he, he would say, I can't anymore, and just, like, walk away. Like, he just really can't sit through them. Like, mm-hmm. one a quarter, if I'm lucky. <laughs> wow. So our daughter is 10, and mm-hmm. I very much indoctrinated her into horror movies at a really young age. Like, she watches the movies with me that I was sneaking around to see at that age. Um, like, this past weekend, we went to a drive-in for a double feature of Scream and the Blair Witch Project. So, but I remember, I I remember a few weeks ago, we hosted a sleepover with one of her friends and the mom is a bit more on the conservative side in terms of like what she allows her child to consume. And Mm -hmm. my daughter was like, yeah, last night, dad and I went to the drive-in to see the Evil Dead and the Evil Dead 2. And (laughs) the mom was like, what are those those movies? Oh, this guy like cuts his hand off with a chainsaw. And then like this tree like goes up a woman's butt. And then like all this like gore and like people get their heads cut off and like all this green stuff comes out. And the mom is like, well, I hope you're not going to let my daughter watch that i'm like what do you think i'm you know like no we're very good about you know so you know but then i would just like pipe in scary music when they were trying to sleep to horrify the kid not to do that (laughs) yeah i'm definitely the weirdo parent of the parent so that's me i have a seven-year-old and a Mm three-year-old and i've indoctrinated the seven-year-old like he's Mm -hmm. mine like he um he i tried to get him to watch new nightmare because i thought maybe that one won't be so scary and that mm-hmm. one was a little too scary for him but he's watched like gremlins and mm-hmm. beetlejuice um so I, he's mine i've got him and like are, all, all the universal monsters i think we've covered already yeah those are awesome movies to get kids like monster squad and gremlins yes. and yeah. so if if and when we ever do a series on like <sighs> like a horror starter pack let's definitely mm-hmm. talk and get you back on sure. um i think jerry and i want to do a show with our kids as well so yeah. we're trying yeah. to make that happen um all right so before i go too far off track which i'm prone to do when <laughs> jerry's not here um tell me both of you like what was your introduction to like in particular uh dream warrior do we even say what we're talking about tonight? We're here to talk about Elm Street 3. Dream. So, whoops. whoops. Um, so tell me, you know, what it is about this particular movie where you're like, yep, this is what I want to talk about. And your overall, like, thoughts on A Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I can go first. Um, go ahead. Jump well, just, just overall, A Nightmare on Elm Street, it was... Um, well, um, I'll be 40 this year, so I watched the movies like as soon as they came out, like on video, because my older brother would rent them with his friends, and that's what they would do. They would go mm. to the video store a block away, and as he was babysitting me, that was the excuse that he was going to babysit me. But then they'd go to the video store, pick up these movies, and I wound up watching these movies. And so the very first one I saw was a nightmare on Elm street and that scene where, you know, Bet uh, Freddie's arms are outstretched in the alley that like seared into my brain and some children would go the other way. I was like, that is so cool. I need more of that all right. the time. And, um, when dream warriors came out, when it came out in 
87. I probably didn't see it until I was probably like eight or nine when I hit the video store. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it was definitely the casting and just like this superhero, magical, fantastical element that was like embedded throughout this particular, um, you know, part of the series. And I know it's not a lot of people's, it's weird because there are a lot of people that are just very, um, it's just not their favorite, but there, uh -huh. there are some that really enjoy it, and I think it's probably because of the casting. And for me, I was just a weird kid. I'm an, I'm a weird adult. I didn't have any friends. I still don't have any friends, just like horror writer people. But it was that relationship of how the teens wanted to protect each other that I really connected with with this particular uh -huh. um, uh, uh, movie. Yeah, I you know it's funny like you just said how the reaction to this movie i think for like a real long time this one and part one kind of go neck and neck in terms of like the favorite of the franchise and it yeah. seems like in the past couple years there's been a swing towards well new nightmare is the best of the series or why doesn't dream master get enough love like i have a couple people coming on for dream master that are like angry that dream warriors gets all the love and Dream Master doesn't. So it's going to be interesting to see if the pendulum has like kind of swung a little bit on this, but we'll see. I love almost every single one of these movies except for a couple parts. We'll get to it later on in the, when we cover this. Brian, how about yourself, my friend? Well, um, I kind of came to the, the movies, you know, just by going to the video store and seeing that cover, you know, I, I have the poster art, you know, behind me here. And because um, I just fell in love with that image and it scared me just that image uh from the you know matthew peaks painting uh from the poster for the first movie freaked me out i, uh -huh. I had nightmares just about the poster as a kid you know i was i must have been about uh i want to say six or seven but my uncle um was really into horror movies and uh he would kind of talk about the movie and i found this book at my local library called uh the nightmare on elm street companion Mm -hmm. And I ended up buying my own copy. And I, I bought this, I swear, when I was seven or eight, and I still have it. And awesome. um, it is the coolest book. Um, and it, it had all this stuff, you know, some had like, you know, shots of Glenn's body coming up out of the bed. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you can see that. Um, but um, that, you know, stuff that didn't even end up in the movie um, and that I thought, wow, this is, this is incredible. And, um, I, when I finally, I, the first movie was the first one I saw uh, at a family Christmas gathering of all things. Uh, and I, I was not disappointed. I, it's what, you know, there's so many movies like you build it up in your mind and it just doesn't live up to it. Nightmare on Elm Street uh, not only lived up, but it surpassed my expectations. Yeah. Even though I knew I, Every I had read the novelizations and everything I could. I I knew the whole story uh, before I ever saw it. But um, yeah, and it's it's been sort of my it's certainly my favorite horror film um, ever since then. Uh, but then Dream Warriors, um, I really latched onto that one for a lot of the same reasons uh, Cynthia did. I think though I don't think I consciously knew it at the time. You know, being the misfit and and having um, 
who this idea of sort of having superpowers in your dreams mm. um, was was pretty awesome. And then you know I think I also I for a while this was my favorite of the series. Uh, I think that's I've I've heard that often from people that three is their favorite though it has kind of slipped a little. That's changed for me a bit um, for a couple of reasons, but. Um, and, and uh, it's kind of slipped to about sort of the middle of the pack somewhere. But, um, but I really still love this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, really excited to, to chat more about yeah. it. Excellent. So let's, let's dive into a little bit. Let's go just really briefly into the production history of this movie. Um, obviously, after Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, it's a success. It makes about $30 million dollars on less than a $3 million budget. And it's the first movie that Bob Shea actually makes money on. Like he had actually leveraged New Line to the point that after the first Elm Street is a success, he doesn't really get to reap the benefits of it overall. So that's partially the reason why a sequel was imperative to him because he's like, hey, I actually need to keep the lights on in here. Um, And Shea realizes really on like, with just like Paramount does with the Friday the 13th movies, like he can crank out these movies on about a yearly pace and he can make some pretty big money. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's also smart enough, I think, to look at like, if you cheat the fans, they're not going to come back. You see Halloween 3 turns fans off to that franchise. And as much as we love like Halloween 4, in 1988, it doesn't do big bucks. But by this point, Halloween is kind of dead and buried. Um, It's about a year removed from Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. And despite how fantastic Jason Lives is, the audience doesn't turn out for it. And it's the lowest grossing Friday the 13th to that point. So Shay realizes like he has something here, but something about Freddy's Revenge left New Line a little bit cold. So they kind of want to go back to the well. So he puts a call into Wes Craven, like let's write a draft for the third Elm Street. I think the understanding is like Craven's not going to direct the movie. And it's kind of an olive branch to Craven because there had been some bad blood during the production of the first Elm Street movie. I think Craven felt like he didn't get the proper credit and definitely didn't get proper compensation for how successful that movie was. So extending the olive branch to come have him write story treatment in first draft, it's definitely Shay trying to mend fences. Um, how familiar are both of you with the script for Elm Street 3, like Craven's cut of it? The original? You know? Yeah. I, I haven't read the entire thing. I've scanned mm-hmm. parts of it, but mm-hmm. it is... I mean, it's more crass. It's, it's yeah. a darker script. Um, and so I, I'm sure there was some hesitation with, I'm sure there was a lot of hesitation with right. moving forward with it. Um, and I think they were just being extra careful after Nightmare 2, and mm-hmm. so, you know, which we went with, with the, the rewrite. Right. Yeah, it's a lot darker script. I mean, like, he's got... Freddie calling Nancy the C word at some point. Um, it's just like, and it's just fast. Wes Craven to me is so fascinating because he's this erudite, intelligent college professor. Everyone that's worked with him has nothing but 
kind words to say about how like professorial he was and how like father he, he was like never abused his cast. But then you look at his work and it's <laughs> just ultra violent. I mean, it's like if Rob Zombie knew how to write actual human beings, <laughs> they would be Wes Craven scripts. Um, so Shay's like, this isn't going to cut it. We like the story, yeah. but the tone isn't what we want. So Chuck Russell is given the script um, and Frank Darabont, who we come to know from The Mist and from Shawshank's, um, Shawshank's Redemption, is brought on to reshape this. And again, this is Elm Street and Bob Shea giving young and up-and-coming talented individuals a chance to shine. This is Chuck Russell's first movie, um, and they add a lot more of a humorous tone to it it's still much darker than what you're going to see eventually. Like by part five, like Freddie is the zany. Six, yeah. yeah. Freddie is like the zany sitcom dad that like, he's basically Kramer in Seinfeld that pops in, <laughs> does his one liner, <laughs> fuck shit up. And then like walks out the door again. Um, but it's like, definitely like, this is the movie that puts Freddie front and center. Um, he's making jokes. Yeah. He's making quips. And this is the first one with the nightmare sequence, which we'll get to. There's a lot more imagination that goes into them. And now we're not just in a boiler room. The nightmares are kind of tailor-made to the psyche of each individual kid. So, so it, I do have to say, um, I, I haven't actually read the, uh, the Nightmare 3, the, the Craven Wagner script, but I have read the, the adaptation of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was done by Jeffrey Cooper. And it's, it's quite different in there too. So it, and it's, it doesn't, mention uh darabon or russell mm-hmm. as could being you, adapted yeah What's could up? you enlighten us in some of the key differences if you say it's quite different like what are the key breaking points in it because i have not read that oh okay um well uh the bones of the of the story are there mm-hmm. very much um the the basic plot uh is there a lot of the names are different uh, and you can tell some of them um, were in Craven's script. Like one of like the character that became Doctor Sims is, da- is named uh, Doctor Madalena, which mm-hmm. is his longtime producing partner. Um, so things like that. I mean, really small things like that. But also on a on a larger level, um, there the char- there are different characters you don't have um like the wizard master thing you uh kincaid can fly in the dream world um rather than it's it's more superhero-y um mm-hmm. also people seem to be able to transform into anything in mm-hmm. the dream world uh, which happens to some extent in the final film um but not as not as much as mm-hmm. as, as as in that um and Basically, it's sort of like, you know, the bones of the story are, are there. Uh, Darabont and, and Russell just made it bigger. You know, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, Philip's death. Uh, he's, he's a sleepwalker in the, uh, in the other story as well. But Freddy essentially picks him up and, and puts him on his... Like, like you, you know, like you would with a little kid dancing mm-hmm. on top of your feet, you know, 
and carries him out and throws him in front of an ambulance. He just throws him into traffic. Wow. Okay. You know, whereas in whereas uh, Darabont and Russell, of course, take that to a whole other level by having the kid be, you know, this creator of puppets and all these things, and then you know, turning him into a puppet with his veins and mm-hmm. you know, throwing him off the of the out of the mm-hmm. window up there. Um, so it's um, it's there's those kinds of similarities. Um, uh, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs, uh, surprisingly, is in both, mm-hmm. um, and uh, though in a little bit different form, it turns out that the original sanitarium uh, for for the um, town was fourteen twenty eight Elm Street. Mm, okay, and so uh, some of those sorts of things. Um, uh, John that is Sack- a small plot of land for a sanitarium. Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, uh, yeah, John Saxon's character does not come appear in, in that version. Uh, Kincaid gets killed. Um, he gets sliced in half. Um, yeah, so things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it just has it, a lot of things are the same, but there's a lot of things that are different. <laughs> you know, I, right. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, right. I think if Craven had been given a, a, a had been given a second pass at it, um, it could have been really interesting. Um, it, it it is interesting, but but it's 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 weird. You know, it's so dark. It's um, it's it's sort of taking the ideas um, from the first movie to a new level mm-hmm. um, in in a good way. Uh, but so th- yeah, that's that's sort of a basic rundown, I guess. Okay. So yeah, it definitely does have that darker tone. Thanks for adding that because I would love to actually read that adaptation. Yeah, I, I haven't actually read the script itself, so I mean, right. there could be differences between the adaptations. Yeah, and I think we're gonna. Do that script at some point. It's like a little oh. bonus with some of our players again. Um, I think we're going to put Halloween for the Etchison script on the shelf because <laughs> it seems to be cursed. Seems to be cursed. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, and I know, like Chuck Russell had a really hard. This is his first movie. He has mm-hmm. a really hard time in his shoot, and it sounds like his cast hates him. Um, I see this note. I'm not sure whose note this is here. Oh, that was me. That was All me. right. Yeah, because in the Never Sleep Again doc, boy, they're they're yeah. rough on Chuck Russell. Mm-hmm. And I listened to um, uh, his post-mortem interview with Nick Garris, and he sort of said, he doesn't make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, they were a little rough on me, but I was trying to get a performance. Right. I, I said, um, but, you know, I, I watched a lot of special features on the blog, you know, the Screen Factory DVD when that came out. And um, everyone has very nice things to say yeah. about Chuck Russell. So, I mean, um, either, and it seems like The Blob would have been a tough shoot, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, from what I see. But, um, you know, uh, it's part of experience, too. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd love to hear more his side of the story of that. And I don't think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that's very much like young director getting mm-hmm. kind of not bullied, but kind mm-hmm. of a lot of pressure from a hands-on producer. Yeah, and, and Bob Shea taking is it on a guest. Yeah, maybe like yeah. Shay is wearing the leather daddy outfit, standing over <laughs> Russell. 
you know, and that could be disconcerting on your first shoot. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's start with, um, you know, as we talk about the movie here, let's start with, I think, the Dream Warriors themselves. Like, I think this is like one of the best ensemble casts and best, mm-hmm. like, this group really clicks. And I think where this movie draws its strength and I, you know, even more so than, England's performance, which is great, is like the ensemble cast and how well they kind of work off of one another. So my question to both of you, like, did you have a particular dream warrior or one that kind of like spoke to you or that you really kind of gravitated towards when you were watching this? Oh, I definitely like screamed when Nancy Thompson came back on screen. Mm -hmm. That was, and I know that when we think of the dream warriors, we think of the teenagers, but I... I would argue in a way that, you know, the character of Nancy Thompson is, is like a dream warrior herself. Like she's an older dream warrior. She's come mm-hmm. to these, um, you know, the younger children of Elm Street, how to use their dreams. And um, I had made a comment in the notes that there was a, a, a line by Neil in, when they were in group therapy in one of the earlier or mid scenes when he referenced what she was trying to do when when they were in group therapy and she wanted them to go to sleep so that they could practice their powers and he said this is almost like peter pan and Mm -hmm. so i I feel like in that sense she became like wendy like from peter pan and she is taking care of like her lost boys her her children and so she definitely has like this motherly presence on screen Mm -hmm. but then she's still struggling with these same fears as well. And so to me, her power is like this more maternal power. This almost elder, you know, we see this in fantasy films and action films. There's typically an elder character who is there to teach the younger characters like their destiny. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that's what the role of Nancy Thompson did here. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that, oh, Brian, you first, my friend. Oh, uh, sure. Um, So... (laughs) I got to admit, you know, uh, just being so smitten with uh, Heather Weinenkamp, mm-hmm. you know, at, <laughs> as 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 a as a young lad, boy, um, on just the ten of us, <laughs> she yeah. was. Uh, <laughs> and the thing is, she she was like she was like the prudish one on that show, but to me, she was she was the one I that I found attractive. All the other girls was like, eh, whatever. But uh, she was just awesome. Um, on that show, <laughs> but uh, more importantly, uh, that character of Nancy Thompson—that's um, my my uh, you know favorite, I guess, final girl um, by far. I, I I think I love the proactive nature of that character mm-hmm. and being bold and not willing to say I'm just going to run away from this thing. I'm going to run towards this thing and try to stop it because it's endangering other people. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is so powerful. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I just love that character and always have, but um, I guess um, I probably related more to a character like Joey Mm-hmm. Just doesn't talk much, and mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm not doing that right now. But uh, you know I I I I am always you know kind of the guy in the corner, you know not really saying anything, because um, I I don't feel like I have that power, you mm-hmm. know. 
in 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 the real world, you know. Um, but maybe in the dream world, I do. It's it, it's sort of it's 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 an interesting thing, and I and I. I'll stick with Nancy for a minute and then we'll definitely dive more into um, Kristen, Joey and the rest, because I think it speaks to how highly Wes Craven thought of the character of Nancy, that he brings her back for this movie after she's really left out of part two completely. Like aside from Jesse reading her diary, there's no Mm. reference to her and she's referred to as Oh, the girl who went crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think thinking about that too. You know, right. watching that movie today. You know, the, the the diary doesn't even really sound like her mm-hmm. as 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 it's being read. You know, this this isn't. You know, it it, it's, it sounds like an some an, some anonymous stereotypical teenager that is mm-hmm. not Nancy Thompson. Yeah. yeah. And I don't mind the diary as a storytelling device to get yeah. a minute of exposition out without going too far. So that way you don't really need to see the first movie to enjoy part two. Because part two was the first one I actually watched. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Craven thought so much of her that he's like, look. And like to your point, Brian and, and Cynthia, like Nancy is a fighter. Like she, that scene where like Freddie gives her the come on and she just jumps into him in part right. one is like such an iconic moment. Um, and what really struck me in re-watching this movie is just processing all the things that she does after the first movie. Like in the first movie, she survives losing her friends, losing her mother, and in essence, she loses her father to drink and depression. Despite all of that, she's rebounded and she's like dedicated to helping other kids that have suffered the same thing as her. Like she's saying like, rather than let the events of this movie define me, I am going to like make sure as best I can that they don't happen to anyone else. And when I think about, Cynthia, jump in. Oh no, I was just going to add to that. Just that that's fantastic because we typically see I mean, we see quite often when there's a sequel, in the final role, it makes an appearance that there's a lot of scarring, mm-hmm. you know, emotional, psychological scarring. And Nancy just came into this role so confident and so powerful. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, a testament to her character that she took this awful thing, um, awful circumstances from life, mm-hmm. and she didn't let it define her future. Right. Yeah. And Heather Langenkamp seems a lot more assured in this movie. Like she's very mm-hmm. good in part one, but there's definitely like a breathy quality to her. There um, is, yeah. I do think that like her best moments in part one, and she's like telling Johnny Depp, like Glenn is the worst boyfriend in horror movie history. <laughs> and she's like, you shit. You know, yeah. like, when she's giving it to Johnny Damon, like that are the that's her best moments. But there's definitely a little bit of that kind of breathy quality to a lot of her acting in part one. But she's young, it's her first big role. Here she seems like way more assured and also like way more in control of that character. Like she really inhabits mm-hmm. that character. Um I find it a bit disappointing that she, A, that she's killed off at the end of this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, and it's a horror movie sequel trope, 
You see it in Friday the 13th part two with Alice, uh, where she's killed off five minutes into the movie. You see it in Halloween five where Rachel is killed off at the end of the first act. Um, you never hear from Sally Hardson again after the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think, to be quite honest, at the end of that movie, you kind of realize, like, yes, she escaped, but she will always live in that house. Um, I can't wait to get to talk about that movie one day, even though, to me, it's like a one-movie franchise, but that's the we're <laughs> there. Um, sorry to anger our, our listeners there. Um, but to me, like Nancy, I feel like she could have lived at the end of this movie and gone on either had that had that like arc where she's out and now the franchise has passed on to Kristen and then uh, Alice, but it feels a little bit painful that she's like killed at the end of this movie. Yeah. I agree. Uh, and that, and that, oh, is in the, that is in the Craven script. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she does die at the end yeah. as well. Uh, to the credit of Craven and also um, Darabont and Russell, they did, you know, she's the last one to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's, she, she is there for the whole movie and not just killed off in the first 10 minutes, uh, which is, which is refreshing uh, mm-hmm. to me. And sorry to interrupt, Cynthia. Oh, no, no. Um, I was going to say, even on rewatching, um, Nightmare 3, just her death is so painful and it's just yes. so emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, Kristen's holding her in her lap and she's rocking her back and forth and just saying, I won't let you die. I'm going to dream you into a beautiful dream forever and ever. I thought that line was just so Right. Emotional. And that's Craven's um, line. Oh, it's his line? That, yep. as, as, I, as I recall, that was Craven's line. Um, wow. Because it's in the novelization just like that. So, uh, so that's 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 nice that, that that got carried over pretty much the way it was. It's a really beautiful moment, and I think it speaks of the power. You know, I know this is Patricia Arquette's first big role, and mm-hmm. she really kills it in this movie. And you could tell that she's destined for much bigger things. Yes. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Cindy. Like Nancy you know, is like the dream warrior of dream warriors. And it fe- and maybe it's just because like I'm knee deep in like putting notes together and rewatching these movies. Um, I don't think that like Nancy Thompson gets the kind of reverence that say Laurie Strode gets in terms of like the pantheon of horror heroines overall. Um, and I get it in part is because like Jamie Lee Curtis is as A-list as an actress can get or an actor mm-hmm. can get. And the fact that she like has no problem returning to this role, like every 20 years, like that's a really wonderful thing. And I think like, just like we embrace Nick, well, just like others embrace Nick Cage because you have this <laughs> ultra A-list actor um, and Patreon. So if you want to get my... <laughs> Listeners, join our Patreon. You'll get my thoughts on Nick Cage for $2. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> but I think that, I think that um, let's face it, like as a horror movie fan, we sometimes feel like outsiders. And as much as like we embrace that status, whenever the quote-unquote cool kids seem to kind of join us for a little bit, we're like, yay, validation. Wow, my yeah. voice just did that. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we move on to the kids, here's my question. By the way, listeners, after this show ends, 
I do have a little bit of a bonus segment with the gentleman from Kill by Kill. Patrick Hamilton. But we're going to have a discussion specifically about this character, but Craig Wasson is Dr. Neil Gordon. Does it <laughs> hurt Nancy's arc a bit that for some reason the 12th most interesting character in this movie gets all the things that really I think should go to Nancy? Mm-hmm. Nancy should be the one who vanquishes Freddy. Mm-hmm. She really, she, she deserves that. It, what would be beautiful is if she and John Saxon uh, somehow do together. Right. Uh, right. You know, that if some sort of healing of that relationship would have been amazing to see, you know, um, rather than him turning out to be, you know, Freddie in disguise in their, in their moment of reunion. Um, yeah. <laughs> such a moment of betrayal, I think. Um, you know, you see him, you know, John Saxon appear, and we know that moments before he died, and then for her to end that way, she never got that reconciliation with her mm-hmm. father. That's almost, it's, it's very Craven, too, because when you think of, you know, Craven does all these things with a lot of, like, um, pain and dysfunction within families sometimes and that is you know very painful to think that you know nancy died in this moment of betrayal she never got this moment of reconciliation with her father that's very heartbreaking and it's such a craven thing to highlight parental failings like that is a theme that runs across every major piece of west craven's work whether it's last house on the left and the parents inability to protect their daughter and can only avenge her. Um, The Hills have eyes, obviously the first nightmare in Elm street all the way through the scream series where that whole chain of events is set off because like one parent rejects her. I mean, it comes out in the third movie, but like one parent essentially rejects her half son. You know, it's, it's even true in music of the heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I've been doing a watch through of all of Craven's directorial work uh, beginning to end, and I just watched that movie. And so it's funny that, you know, even this, the stuff that is such a major theme of all his horror work is also in, you know, his one, really one major um, non-horror piece, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely, and again, it stems from Craven's own childhood and his father leaving at a young age when when Wes was a young age and then his father dying I think when Craven was six years old and kind of like Craven Craven really processing throughout his whole career these these feelings towards his family so it's interesting to see that come through here but I just think think with the thing with Neil with Dr. Neil Gordon it's this guy who like he's the one that sees Amanda Kruger when I think that should be Nancy, he's the one that kind of gets the backstory of like what birthed Freddy, literally gave birth to Freddy Krueger. Um, he's tossing John Saxon around um, like a rag doll. I'm like, Jesus, man, John Saxon could get a sucker punch in on Bruce Lee every now and again. <laughs> if, you know, Bruce Lee would have a few pops in between 
things and you're gonna let like 88 pound like craig wasad like bill maher's stunt double come in and like <laughs> in ragdoll saxon like that just doesn't that just yeah, isn't right so he he's pretty wooden in the role and yeah. I, I don't i don't know that it's a particularly well written role and it yeah. you know it it seems it's a character that's in the the craven script mm -hmm. but it it almost seems like it's a meant to be a love interest and there's uh, you know where it could have been nancy could have been just that role right you know um in addition to to what she already plays in the film yeah. um it's it's it would be interesting exercise to sort of rethink it in those terms you know i mean there are some things that wouldn't work because they would have to be in two places at the same time obviously but right you know it's it's a it's an interesting thought and I agree, even because it's him, Neil, who sees Amanda Kruger, and he has you know, the, his, the interactions with her, and there's the one scene with Nancy and Neil in the car, and Nancy says, she says she, about the nun, she, it, sounds like she know, it sounds like she knows more about Kruger than I do, and so mm -hmm. um, I, it, it would be interesting to like reimagine that role if Nancy mm -hmm. was the gainer of the knowledge of the mythology and the backstory of Kruger. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would make for a little bit stronger movie. Just also, again, because like, oh God, I know and let's, I know that Mr. Rassan's gone on to be like, he, he, I guess, does like book narration now. Like he just has a nice career reading audiobooks or Audible, which bully for him, but he's like an empty shirt in this movie. Like, it's just, I mean, give Larry Fishburne more time, you know? Well, like, I was thinking, what if Larry Fishburne played that character? Right. I would, and while I was watching, I was like, man, he would be, he would kill that role, you know, yeah. um, and I, because he, he has such gravitas. Right. Um, even, even then, <laughs> and, you know, that was before he really, you know, became Lawrence Fishburne, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It in some of those movies, mm -hmm. um, but he is, he's so good. Right. Uh, in, in the few moments he has in this movie. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely yeah. agree. All right. Sorry to be hating on Craig Wasson. Oh. Just, you, know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Before I forget, because I really wanted to say this, um, as we start talking about the individual dream warriors, I want to just like emphasize about Patricia Arquette when I was rewatching. Yeah. Let's, and let's dive into all of them right now. Absolutely. Oh, okay because I'm like obsessed with her presence and how haunting she is. Mm -hmm. And then I, I was checking if it, if it was um, the release date was around the time of Poltergeist because she just reminded me so much of like a older Heather O'Rourke in mm -hmm. that, in, 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 in Nightmare 3. And so in 86, Poltergeist 2 came two. out. And I, 2. Um, and so there's just something about and it's just like all of Patricia Arquette's like roles. She's very like ethereal and haunting, but it just comes out so power powerfully here. And I just was, um, and I'm sure you'll talk about it on your next show um, regarding, you know, that she just didn't make that appearance for mm -hmm. um, Nightmare 4. And it's probably just because of, I know there was tension on the set with she didn't remember her lines and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of earlier scenes. So maybe it just, that was the reason why she didn't come back, and now, and I almost like we're trying to reimagine the new, the role of Neil in this. Right. I would only 
be interesting to reimagine Nightmare Four with Patricia Arquette back in no, that role. Right. I, yes. Tuesday uh, night. I, Tuesday okay. night has such difficult shoes to fill in that movie. Not just because like Patricia Arquette has gone on to have such an illustrious career, but I know that both like Rodney Eastman as Joey and Ken Sagos as Kincaid have spoken like in the Never Sleep Alone documentary. They say like, we're supposed to be having these real emotional scenes with this person we have a deep history with, but we don't know, you know, we've never acted with this person before and it was really hard for them to do so it's like it's yeah it's tough to fill those shoes Kristen mm-hmm. is such a fast because her power is like that ability such a cool and imaginative power like you know mm-hmm. instead of pulling Freddie out into the real world which the first two movies do now you have a character pulling people into her dream world and that's such a neat kind of superpower yeah. Yeah, it, one of the things I noticed today when I was rewatching it, though, um, was that seems to be what she does at the beginning. You know, she pulls Nancy in, she talks about pulling her father in, different things like that. And but then it doesn't. For but like um, when when she's trapped in the quiet room and hmm. she's being sedated, why doesn't she just pull them all in? Why they 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 go to her. Mm-hmm. in the dream and i thought oh, well that's weird i wonder and, how much has to do with like the effects of the sed- sedation that, that's, a, that that's a good insight brain, right i mean think about how yeah. like if you're groggy you know whether you're oh, operating sure. at full strength so but it speaks of the power and i think when we talk about the group maybe we'll talk more about how they kind of come together is as almost like super friends or like teenage justice league yeah it's sort of, you know? sort of x-men you know <laughs> i mean yeah. i would definitely watch this in terms of a justice league movie over the snyder cut you know whatever <laughs> that ends up being like i i'm gonna dude, tell that to my husband because he's like he knows all things like comics and superheroes so i'm gonna put it in that relation and maybe then he'll understand mm-hmm. my movies okay yeah. is your husband like going on boards going release the snyder cut because he he talks about really he's obsessed like he's like fighting with people on the internet oh wow yes it's uh my my son's names are clark kent and bruce wayne wonderful <laughs> We named them after superheroes because that is how much into superheroes my husband is. Did you have any say into that? Were you like, eh, we'll go along with it? Or, you know, the problem is I was like pregnant and I just didn't care at the time. I was like, yeah, name them whatever you want. And I didn't think we would go that route, but then we went that route. So, were you just like, just get them out of me, just get them out and you can name them? For the second one, I really wanted to name him Damien. I promised him, like, no, it's not Damien from The Omen. It's like Damien, Damien from, from The, the Exorcist. Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I let it slip out that, oh, was Damien from, uh, you know, The Omen. He's like, we're not mm-hmm. naming our child Damien. So we went with Bruce Wayne. So Bruce, Bruce was almost Damien. <laughs> I really wanted to name our daughter Clubber Lang after <laughs> Mr. T's character in Rocky Three. I'm like... I'm like, or Apollo, like Apollo Creed, like let's name her Apollo Creed. And yeah. I was immediately shot down by <laughs> oh. my wife who told me under 
no uncertain terms would that be, you know, our daughter's name. So sad, very sad. (laughs) I basically got no, I got no say over what, what Ada, what Ada would be called. But to be fair, I didn't carry her. So like, I guess, you know, that's not an argument I was going to win or (laughs) even be prepared to make at that point with a straight face. So, um, all right. So speaking of children, Let's talk about, let's, you know, my segues are fantastic. Uh, let's talk about these dream warriors. And um, Brian, you spoke a little bit about Joey um, and he who has like the disappearing eye tattoo. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was, I wrote that in my notes. I wrote some more notes. I said, what's, mm-hmm. with, what's with Joey's teardrop tattoo? And then I realized it's not a tattoo. It's written mm-hmm. on an ink. Ink. That's, that's what, uh, the description is in the script, I guess, according to the uh, Never Sleep Again. Right. Yeah, I had to go back to Never Sleep Again to rewatch the segment on Nightmare 3 because I was like, what's what's up with this teardrop tattoo? Because it doesn't appear again. And, and they had said it uh, was drawn in, in ink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. Like, I think it's just one of the, I know kids draw on themselves, so maybe that's all it was. But to me, yeah. it just seems like one of those um, production glitches, like one of those things you just kind of right. like – did and then forgot about so um it's it's sort of see it it doesn't fit to me you know because it does look at the at first like a teardrop tattoo it's like mm-hmm. has joey been doing hard time mm-hmm. you know I, yeah you know it just i don't know <laughs> so what i love about these kids in general like just as a group is the fact that you have this group of kids that have all been through some extremely hard times. Mm -hmm. Um, They're institutionalized. They removed from their family, but more than anything else, like they're not believed. And I think that is like the hardest thing is that you have these kids that aren't, that are going through some really difficult things and nobody is going to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And within this institution and within this inca- really what's incarceration um mm-hmm. you know the quiet room is basically in the kids live in fear of it the quiet room is nothing more than solitary confinement and i think right. studies have shown through the year like the real insidious effects that that kind of solitude has on the human psyche and how it really wears them wears them out and breaks them down um these kids look out for one another. And I think that is like what I think like subconsciously what most people love about this movie is all of us through life are kind of looking for that group that is going to accept us. Um, mm-hmm. That group that we're going to call like, yes, you know, like when you're young, you're born into family and you don't get to choose. But as you get older, you get to redefine family on your own terms and you get to like choose your family. And I think that's one of the beautiful things you see in this movie is like these kids look out for one another. You have that moment where lights are out and they start talking about who is going to take the first shift right? because they want to look out for one another. And I think like little moments like that are what make this movie really beautiful. And you see, Oh man, like I think like I identified in some ways with like the character of Taryn white being like, I don't want to say an ex-punk rocker because I'm still like a punk rocker at heart. Um, I would like to think that on a Friday night, if I could, I'd be at a show right now. 
you know, like dancing around and like seeing some crazy shit go down in a basement in Boston. Um, so I really liked her and I really appreciated her struggle. Like you see this, like, and what broke my heart about her, she has one of the worst deaths in the movie. Yeah. And by worst, I mean like how heartbreaking that death is because you have this character that, I mean, at one point, like she's offered point blank free drugs. Like right. you, you want them, here you go. And mm -hmm. she, doesn't even hesitate. She's like, fuck you. Like, I don't do this anymore. Um, and her and you don't see enough of her when she's like, I'm bad and I'm beautiful. And she actually manages to hurt Freddie a little bit. And what mm -hmm. does her in like those, I mean, it's a beautiful effect of like the puckering sores. that just look like little mouths looking to yeah. get fed. Um, but what really breaks my heart is like, you know that like when she's discovered everyone's going to say just another dead addict. And when I watched that, I thought, wow, that's, I wonder, that, that made me think of like, oh, the Rod Lane death in the first mm -hmm. movie. Because, oh, the kid that had it coming, mm -hmm. you know? You know? It, and it's so sad. I find, I find both of those deaths, they're not the most, ex I mean, maybe Terrence is, is more so. But, you know, um, Rod's death in the first film is, is, is not the one that people talk about. Because he hangs himself. Or right. Freddie hangs in, in, in the jail cell. But that's, that's a theme that's brought very much into this movie. You know, that suicide, Freddie making people's deaths look like suicide or mm -hmm. overdose or something they did to themselves. You yeah. know, um, in the beginning with Patricia Arquette, with her her wrist being slit, mm -hmm. that, yes. that 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 string of uh, you're right, uh, the suicide um, imagery. And that's that's a weird difference between uh, the adaptation from the final film, um, because in the adaptation I read, I don't like I said, not sure how true to Craven's script it is, but um, Essentially, uh, Kristen wakes up from her dream, shatters the mirror herself, and slits her wrist herself in in that version. Um, be, essentially, because she doesn't, she wants, she does not want to experience. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to face um, Kruger. Hmm. Right. It's it's so it's a very different kind of dynamic um, in in that sense, and the, I think that teen suicide angle is what Craven was starting from. Mm -hmm. You know, like like uh, with um, the original film, he was starting from, you know, the, the, the kids that were, the stories of the kids that had died in their sleep, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, sort of this idea of your parents can't protect you is carried over into this version too, um, except I think the, the, the item that was in the news that inspired this one was the teen suicide uh, trends at the time, which, you know, unfortunately are still happening, um, but. And uh, there was a trauma yeah. thing that was mentioned in um, Never Sleep Again, that there was a, a growing presence of like clinics or mm -hmm. psychiatric centers that were advertising that they could take your teen and deal with, and you know, help, help improve their behavioral issues. So I'm mm -hmm. wondering if, response to this because I know um, 
my, my children, both of my boys are on the spectrum. And I know that speaking to people who are older on the spectrum, they talk terribly about some of the therapies that their parents had put them through, like in the 80s and 90s, at like right. like torture with some of the, you know, heavy handed forms of behavioral improvement. So um, I was so young back then, but I do, you know, I'm, so I'm not sure what that love, what that, how big that presence was of these centers, but I know it was mentioned in the documentary. Yeah, this is, as well. yeah. yeah, we are not far removed from the era where a lot of these institutions are going to shutter mm -hmm. and you start to see treatment move towards like a residential treatment, partial inpatient treatment, um, and like more outpatient therapy for persons. Mm -hmm. um, I was struck because I'm a mental health counselor and a school adjustment counselor. And in my role as an adjustment counselor at a middle school, like I've actually had to do on the spot, like suicide assessment scales and have had to send kids out um, because they presented a harm to themselves and had to make that call, which is oddly enough. Yeah, oddly and oddly enough, I'm more comfortable with that than I am with like just self harm um, mm. and cutting. And I don't know why that is, um, but like I've had to make that call like a few times in my first year to be like, I think right now, like we're having, we're going to send you out and have to call the parent and let them know like why we're doing that. Um, and it, it is heartbreaking. And one of the things that struck me, and I put this in my notes here, is like, the kids in this movie, you only see Kristen get institutionalized. Mm -hmm. But if it follows the same pattern, Kristen is like sent away because her mother doesn't want to deal with her. She's not yeah. sent away because mom has any sort of concern for her. Um, you see the, the actress is Brooke Bundy, who she's the mother of Tiffany Helm. And if you're a, Friday the 13th, The New Beginning Stan, which why wouldn't you be? Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I really like New Beginning. It's I'll, funny. I'll, 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 admit, I'll admit to that. I really enjoy it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's got its moments. Um, yeah, yeah. It, she is the mom of Violet, who is like the new wave girl, who's like, is the, does the kind of like robot dance in the movie. And Bundy, his, Miss Bundy has said like, I'm not acting in this movie. Like whenever mm -hmm. I'm, I'm channeling how I feel about my own daughter, basically, whenever I'm in front of like Patricia Arquette, because my daughter was a pain in the ass. And, um, you see her like, she cannot sign off her parental rights fast enough. Yeah. Kristen institutionalized. Um, and to the point where like Kristen's dream later on her night that evolves into a nightmare is like Kristen at, you know, like Kristen's mom, like saying, I'm going to stay with you right now. I'm going to offer you warmth. I'm going to offer you comfort. And you have that great, like I said, where's the fucking bourbon? bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably my favorite Freddie moment in the whole series. It's just the one I kind of return to over and over again, despite how heartbreaking that is. And whenever I work with children and I work with less children at the counseling center by choice, um, usually what the reason the kids I'm, why I'm seeing the kids, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And it's like, it's the kids, not the problem. The parent is the problem. Right. Um, 
And you see that here in this movie with Kristen and her mother. Yeah. I even have the I wrote the line down just because it, it, it's such a sad scene because it mm. goes back to what you said. She couldn't sign her away fast enough. And it, she says, you know, God, well, after she's decapitated and Freddie's holding her head up to Kristen, God damn it, Kristen, you ruin everything. Mm-hmm. Every time I bring a man home, you spoil it. So it's like the men, you know, the, the suitors that she brings home are more important than her daughter who's suffering and I know right. it's still a dream sequence but it's still, still very sad um, because we do see that she wants to just sign the papers away and yep. be done and it's funny and again, sorry, you, you uh, first Brian no jump in my friend you know the, it's, it, again, I sorry to keep on you know pointing back to the first film but I see you know this is so similar to uh, this is now Tina's sort of like the poor Yes. But she's she's the she's she's the poor lower middle class kind of person. She wakes up from her nightmare. Her mom comes in, and mm. then you know the boyfriend comes in. You come back to the sack of what? Right. It's almost mm. the same scene. To be fair, you though. have this rich, uh, yeah, this sort of ultra, you know, the upper crust sort of version of that same scenario. It's it's an interesting parallel that I didn't really think about much. Um, it, it just, it's just because I think I watched the first movie. Right. Often. To be fair, that's exactly where I was going, Brian. Oh, you enough, were? Okay. I was going to say how much that mirrors like Tina's scene, except like the mom has this real pathos and heartbreak. And to be fair, I was going to say like that dude in the first movie, how can you not run back to the sack with that guy? I mean, really like, you know? That guy had it going on. Oh <laughs> man, I, I've never seen so much hair on a man. Oh man, <laughs> you know you it's, it's come visit. It. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, yeah. So um, all right. So I again, I think that Kristen is such a fascinating fascinating character especially in this movie and that line at the end where she's like i'm going to dream you into a better world every night and from my understanding like the light coming on in the model home at the end of the movie it's mm-hmm. supposed to be insinuated like that is like nancy and not freddie turning mm-hmm. on that light and kind of watching over everybody from the afterlife it's supposed to end you know it does give it they'll go up oh, freddie will be back next year mm-hmm. Um, but it's supposed to be an end on a note of hope, and that's actually Nancy um, returning. Right, because the light is from the second floor. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So the music, the music as it seems to counteract that, as I recall, mm-hmm. which is it yeah. kind of it's kind of sort of that end, that end, you know, taxi driver stinger. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, in, in, in the music. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that in Craven's script in particular, like that was the idea. That was the yeah, idea. which makes I, I prefer that to to mm-hmm. being Freddy. Yeah. Um, so, moving through this just a little bit, um, the other heartbreak, like poor Will, like Will is assaulted by his own wheelchair. Um, yeah. <laughs> someone that has worked with with adults that either have intellectual or developmental disabilities, or I spent a year working with adults with traumatic brain injury. Um, I have like a personal, I'm not sure if it's quite a phobia about wheelchairs, but like I, one of my biggest fears is like, what if I'm ever in a wheelchair? How would I get around? Like I 
just it's something I struggle with. And I think working with adults with TBI for a year kind of helped me process a lot of my emotions and feelings in that. So they're a lot helpful, hopefully a lot healthier now. Um, but again, it's another, you have like, you know, Will who's like, and I think Ira's going to be on our show to kind of talk about his experience making this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, who's like, so like, I'm the wizard master and he's so happy and like, just that he can do things that his friends can do and how that's like, he goes out again so quick. And that's maybe my one complaint about this movie is like, these poor kids don't really know what they're up against. And so few of them have that moment of like triumph overall. Right. Yeah, I- Seeing, seeing some of these fantastic superpowers of them, like they, they didn't really get to use their superpowers too mm-hmm. much on screen, especially Will, like the, the wizard master, when he jumps up and, you know, the, the green lightning and, you know, taking Freddy back. That was just, just a few seconds that we were able to see him really mm-hmm. in that role. And it, what's the Kruger like? Sorry, kid. Like, I don't deal with like fantasy. I don't believe or, in fairy tales. I don't so. believe in fairy, right. You know, yeah. and it's like, Fuck, man. Um, you get... Do, 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 do. Oh, and Jennifer, like, no. one of the best sequences. Again, <laughs> in a movie filled with amazing sequences, like, you get Jennifer, who is, like, obsessed with television. And I guess, like, Dick Cavett went on, like, a talk show host Dick Cavett, basically said, I'll do this movie if I can, like, be opposite Jaja Gabor, because, like, I can't think of anyone more insipid that I <laughs> want to see killed in a horror movie, Josh Agobor. So <laughs> the way, this is such a great sequence, like the way the TV kind of cuts out and goes staticky. And it's like, yeah, the, and it's green and, and red. Yes. A little bit, yeah. You know, but and it's the, not stripes. It's, 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 it's blurry around. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not just, you know, right. In your and face the, too on the nose. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Who gives a fuck what you think? And it's like, who has not wanted to blurt that out to some of the heart, you know? So, um, all right. Are there any other kids that we want to touch on? Am I moving through them too quick? Like, is there anyone here that I'm missing on right now? We can't just go so quickly beyond that scene, though, Mike. Okay. This is the moment where Freddy starts calling everyone bitch mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah so um that's a great line though yeah, welcome to primetime bitch i mean that, mm-hmm. that's sort of a classic moment um it's it's supposedly a, a, an improvised line right um and it works really well in that yeah. instance I, th- I think they probably took it a little bit too far in some mm-hmm. later films but uh that that's sort of the birth of the pop culture ready that we really uh, lived with for mm-hmm. a long time after that, is that moment, in my opinion. I think that's a really good segue to talk about Freddie himself in this movie and then his status as a pop culture icon. And I think this is really the kind of like real birth of that. Like the train definitely leaves the station. Um, by the time this movie rolls around. So I'm on the record, like I think is going back and rewatching all this, all of these movies. Part two, Freddy to me is probably my favorite portrayal of Freddy where it's (laughs) so dark. It's really terrifying. 
And the one-liners he does have, like, you've got the body, I've got the brain, is then used to, like, scare the hell out of Jesse. Yes. This is the Freddy, though. Like, when you think about Freddy Krueger as a character, this is the one I associate with the series. Definitely takes a turn towards comedy, but it's still pretty dark. I mean, you have that puppet master death, which looks absolutely... What a piece of... I mean, that is so imaginative. Um, Fantastic. It's like, you can watch it today, even if you, you know, um, just all of the, the effects and like the earlier... I mean, most of the Elm Streets, they, they, they use real, you know, material as opposed to CGI. And so that's why some of these effects are just spectacular. The, you know, Jennifer on the TV and Philip with, uh, you know, the, the puppet. Um, but yeah, no, I just wanted to add that. Yeah. <laughs> just this fantastic, fantastic effect. Yeah. Hey, I missed talking about Kincaid, and I think that is yeah. egregious yeah. on my part. So I apologize. Um, because Kincaid... I, to my knowledge, he's the first black character in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. I'm trying to think of part one and part two. Like, um, so Ken yeah, maybe, Sagos maybe is, some some ancillary ancillary characters that you hardly ever see. Maybe at the pool party in the background, yeah, but like exactly. that would be about it. And yeah. not only that, he actually lives. Which exactly. I think is really important because, you know, typically the, the joke is like the African-American character dies first. And, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, Ken Sagos has said in many documentaries, like I told friends and family, when you go see Dream Master, don't get popcorn, don't go right. to the bathroom, get your ass in the seat because I ain't in it for that long. It goes right back to that trope. You know, yeah. and Sagos has, again, some of the best lines in the movie, like when he's... <laughs> He you know, he's like, great, now it's my dick trying to kill me, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely didn't, like, for the strongman character, like, definitely didn't bulk up for the role, you know? Um, he just kind of wears a muscle shirt, but, yeah. you know, what are you going to do? But uh, technically, he's the, he's the second black character in the, in the Night One Entry film because uh, Lawrence Fishburne shows, shows up. <laughs> sure. Shows up. He's the first central. In terms yeah, of like a prominent character. You yeah, know, like, you yeah I know. I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> he's just right. so, I think his character also really stands out because he's so brave. Like, you know, yes. fantastic lines, but he challenges Freddy. Like, they're right. at the end. You know, where are you? Get, you know, get over here. And so mm-hmm. he's not afraid at all of this, you know, of, of the thing that he fears. And mm-hmm. even early on, it was the, you know, him fighting with the staff that you're not going to put me in the quiet room. And here right. at the end, you see this bravery develop where he's like, I don't care. I'm going to get this thing that's hurting my friends. Mm-hmm. The scene I really like with him is when he's in the quiet room by himself and he's singing the song. Right. The Ain't gonna dream no more. No. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, just that, because he's, he's sort of this brash, tough character but then when he's alone and he has to fight on his own and he knows it, he's just like, I can, he's still strong, but there's that vulnerability in, in the character that comes out in, that, in, those, in those moments uh, where he's alone that are really powerful. Oh, absolutely agreed. He, ha- I think Egos has the ability in this to switch from being like 
comic relief to having some real pathos with the character overall. Absolutely would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but Freddie in this movie, like England by this role, I think England has said like, when I did part two, something felt off. Like this didn't feel like the character that Wes Craven created and it didn't feel like the character that I, I felt he was. And you see, I think England almost take over at times for lack of a better. So he's going to kind of do what he wants to do. And I think like Bob Shea and New Line realized like the star of this movie is Freddy Krueger. As much as we love the kids in this movie and as great as this cast is and this ensemble is, the fans are turning out for Freddy at this point. So he's really front and center. Like, just the way this movie is shot, like it's much, much more brightly lit than the, and I think like you have like the very septic walls of the um, institution, but like Kruger is like front and center, brightly lit, spotlights on him. It's not like in part one and two where he's kind of kept in the shadows. Like Kevin Yeager's makeup in this movie, it kind of harkens more back to the first film overall. but it's not quite as grotesque, I think. I think it, they seem to make a conscious decision to make Freddy look a, just a little bit more palpable overall. Um, and this is the most iconic Freddy makeup, and it's very similar to the one in four. Uh, mm-hmm. You have like you know the triangular scar on his cheek. Um, I I used to draw pictures of Freddy all the time from from the different movies, and the and the one from three and four was the one I drew the most. So it was just mm-hmm. like these, these details that, that we just sort of picked up on um, that Kevin Yeager uh, put into this version that sort of carried through um, for quite some time, really. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's an iconic look uh, for him. And um, the attitude is, is the iconic attitude, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. In, in the first one, he's almost like an old man. Right. You know, he, he shuffles a lot. He, it, where he's more athletic in the second movie, um, but, but not like he is in, in, in these later ones. Yeah. You know, where, where he's running after people and all these sorts of things. Um, it's, it's a different sort of even just physicality uh, that England brings to the character in the different films. And there's almost like a Tex Avery quality to like what they give him to do like there's that kind of looney tunes cartoon like anything goes let's stretch the bounds of reality you have like the mirror scene with freddie popping up and all the mirrors you have him as like the literal puppet master you have him like stretching through the bounds of the television set and like basically breaking the physics of that um transforming from a lovely nurse to <laughs> so what do you think that the, the, the when they actually put the or tried the makeup the freddy mm-hmm. makeup on um stacy alden it just didn't work it just it did not it's work so it's so weird looking it's so weird looking. Yeah. oh man and god love her for trying it but like yeah. Yeah, that just was not just was not going to work. So Freddie at this point, I mean, to promote this movie, he, Robert Englund's appearing on MTV and like hosting 
blocks of music videos at this point. And this is like 80s MTV at its peak. Like really it's at its peak of like being able to shape youth culture and, you know, the taste of like music and pop culture overall. So to have him on there is really, really huge. You get like this melding of heavy metal and horror movies. Like someone realizes like this is the Reese's peanut butter cup of moviedom. Um, so you have Dawkin coming on the soundtrack to do like the Dream Warriors theme and, and England appearing in makeup in the music video itself. The story goes that like England and Dawkin were like blowing lines of coke off of the Freddy Grove. So. <laughs> 80s were wild, man. Um, and Freddy's being licensed like um, our friends over at Consequence of Sound have a really good YouTube video up of like tracing like the evolution of Freddy as a pop culture icon. Mm-hmm. Um, Bubblegum cards, posters, mm-hmm. lunch boxes, pajamas. Pajamas. <laughs> oh. So here's. The stuff that was marketed for kids is, is probably <laughs> some of the most disturbing uh, having to do with the, with the character, too. 80s are wild, man. Yeah. I 80s mean, are wild shit. Oh. So here's <laughs> yeah. my question. All of us are parents. Brian, you wrote an article for Bloody Disgusting detailing like the crimes of Freddy Krueger and what he represents and yeah. are looking away at his crimes. How comfortable are like looking back? It was cool back then. How comfortably are we like seeing like this child killing, he's a pedophile person, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs? Like, market him to me all day long, but, like, would you want your kids wearing, like, a Freddy Krueger t-shirt while carrying a Freddy Krueger lunchbox to school? I'm probably going to say yes because I'm a terrible parent, but I might judge others or give them a little side eye if they did it. You know, it's, it's interesting. You were talking about the 80s being a wild time, and um, I actually had a, had a piece uh, hit bloody disgusting today um that's all about uh, the horror movies that came out in the 80s that were serious horror films that were marketed to children and families that had that pg or g rating you know from disney and you know steven spielberg and um jim henson different things like that um there was this um before the PG-13 rating, there was this weird sort of, you know, it's okay. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna market we're gonna market horror like brutal horror to kids. You know, I mean, I, I one of the ones I mentioned in there, I mean, is is Poltergeist. You know, I mean, you got you got someone ripping their face off. Of mm-hmm. You know, you've you've got um, uh, a ch- ghost abducting a child. You have, you know, a tree eating. A child, you know, we've talked about this on on the show, but I mean, that that's some pretty wild stuff, um, and and so I think um, this is a little late in that period, you know, in eighty seven, eighty eight, but um, there there was, I think, more of a permissibility to to market um, things that were directly to kids 
that that were um, that were you know real serious horror kinds of things. And I don't know exactly why that is. I, I couldn't really figure that out, <laughs> but it, it is an interesting sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and by the '90s, it started to soften, and you you still have sort of sort of you know quote-unquote scary movies directed to kids, but they're more like Hocus Pocus or, or uh, um, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, they mm-hmm. have some scary things, but they're not, they're, they're not like, you know, Poltergeist or Return to right. Oz or, or, or things like that. Um, so it, it's, just a, it's just a weird element of that time, I think, mm-hmm. you know. So Cynthia, you have some notes here. Uh, I believe these are your notes and I'm sorry if they're they're not, but I think talking about like the particular time of the eighties and the satanic panic. And I see that you have here the space shuttle, the Challenger exploding. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you because I think that everything you write, writing, written here definitely marks like, where maybe the tie turned a little bit and makes that line of demarcation from the permissiveness of the eighties to like the start of helicopter parenting. Right. And so, you know, I started thinking a lot about, you know, what we were talking about earlier with Wes Craven and the failure of parenting or the failure of adults. And then I started looking back at the eighties and just thinking about, like as a child, like what was the point for me as a child when I started feeling like maybe the adults just don't know what they're talking about or maybe the adults are failing us. And I know I, you know, I was so pretty young in the eighties, but then I remember pretty vividly, you know, the space shuttle challenger exploding. And that happened when we were in school, we were watching this launch. I remember just you know, the the silence in the room and just the confusion, everybody was confused. The adults couldn't tell us what was mm-hmm. happening. I just remember that moment thinking the adults can't explain this horrible mm-hmm. thing to us. And so that just created this shift in me when I started realizing maybe they don't always know what's good for us. And then there was you know, the satanic panic, which was on every single daytime talk show. If you were a kid in the 80s and you stayed at home because you were sick one day, I'm sure you saw it on Oprah or Sally Jesse Raphael or the Defoe Donahue show. There was always an obsession that they were Satanists in your community and they were eating eating babies. Um, so I just remember thinking that was just silly. <laughs> like Even as a child, I thought, this was ridiculous. Right. Um, but then we also had the AIDS you know, the AIDS and HIV, this crisis that is crippling communities, but that people in leadership are completely ignoring. And I just remember, I remember that because I, my, my, my mother in particular is a very uh, religious woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she probably hasn't always been right in her life. But I remember even some of the her positioning on HIV and AIDS was very harmful and hurtful to uh, the community and you know some of my uh, family members as well. And, and we were seeing that in um, society where people in leadership were just not moving forward with trying to help our these, these our loved ones. Um, of course, you know Reagan. <laughs> Reagan was president, and just 
the increase of Christian conservative values. Um, but then there were also, as we're seeing all these, you know, this positioning of intense Christian conservative values, there's still these really horrible things that are happening to children. We have a lot of high profile kidnappings, child killings, um, the Adam Walsh, his son's killing wasn't too long before, the Atlanta child murders, I believe that concluded in the 80s. But there were still these really bad things that were happening, um, children on milk cartons. I remember mm -hmm. at that time, you know, my mother saying, mm -hmm. you couldn't walk to the park anymore. I mean, it was a block away because somebody could come kidnap you or whatnot. So just this very strange uh, balance or conflict between these intense Christian conservative values and all these horrible things that we're seeing. And I think that some of what we see in Nightmare 3 is a response to Nightmare 2 because there's really heavy religious imagery in Nightmare 3, mm -hmm. um, which is, um, which is, I think, a response to some, maybe, could be, which uh, some people, uh, because of some people's opinions about Nightmare 2, which I personally think is a fat, Nightmare 2 is a fantastic film and a very important film. Um, so, yeah. So, those are, those are just some thoughts on on that, and I'm um, more than willing to talk more oh, about yeah. Them, yeah. <laughs> we totally agree. I remember we talked pretty in depth in our Freddy's Revenge episode about the HIV crisis and how mm -hmm. it was seen. And in, in the early to late 80s, AIDS was seen as a disease that happened to gay men and intravenous drug users and they get what they deserve was the mm -hmm. general attitude. And it was, there was such a lack of, similar to what we see today with the mm -hmm. administration and COVID for different reasons, there was such a lack of urgency to do anything in terms of research, in terms of prevention, in terms of education. It was just seen like, as long as you're not gay and as long as you don't use intravenous drugs, you will be fine. And you know what? This is a punishment for that group. Um, I remember being in fifth grade and everyone gathered around to watch the challenger and our to your point our teachers had no response like they were they were crying like our teachers were crying and they were like if you ask them a question they just told you to sit down like they could not help you in that moment um there was like a movie of the week, I think on NBC about Adam Walsh after it happened. And I think my parents like made me watch at least the first part of it. Um, but yet growing up as a kid, like I remember, you know, it's late August right now. So thinking back to my summers as a kid, basically when the sun came, sun came up, my mom would open the door, say, leave, go find your friends, do whatever you want. I'm going to yell out the door at lunchtime. You're going to come home and eat, and then I'm going to open the door again, and you're going to leave, and I'll call you at dinner. So we were left like we were in the woods all day. We were like playing basketball or football all day. We were like playing in swamp. Like we were just getting up to no good, basically. But like no one watched over us, you know. I used to like my parents would go out on a Friday night or Saturday night to go to the mall and then go get a coffee 
or they went to a key party and just didn't tell us, you know, I don't know. Um, but I would like terrorize my little sister who was five years younger by like shutting myself in a room, holding the door closed and literally yelling, help Freddie's here to get me and her crying, <laughs> you know, and like no one cared, you know, I mean, like we were left to our own devices. And I think to your point, like all of these things, the AIDS crisis, the, awareness of things like serial killers that are out there, the satanic panic, the pendulum swung in such a different direction that all of a sudden you have like parents like hover over their children. Um, mm. When our daughters first started having play dates, they had, she had one kid who she really liked, really nice young girl. And she would come over for her play date and the dad would stay. Hmm. And I'm like, I guess I'm entertaining a grown man that I don't really have anything in common with. And oh, he's a conservative too. So fantastic. It was really nice. And it wasn't out like that wasn't part of his, you know, persona. But like, I'm like, I don't really know you. I really just want to go do some writing and hang out. Why am I having a play date with another 40 year old dude while our daughter, you know, like, that was weird to me where when when my wife and I were first like having our kid go on these like play dates, like, do we have to stick around? Like, I don't want to do that. Like I want free fucking babysitting for an hour, you know? Um, are we bad parents? My, my parents were very, even, I, I grew up and I still live in inner city Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we had, you know, we, Chicago's always had its fair share of crime and we have, John Wayne Gacy that was like sentenced in the 80s mm-hmm. and so um, when I started getting a little older and I wanted to go to the movies um, my mother would come with me and sit with me so I was never able to see the movies alone so like when I saw like Nightmare on Elm Street like on 3D <laughs> in the movie theater my mother mm-hmm. was sitting right next to me because I couldn't she was always she was even from very young she was always hovering always mm-hmm. there never go anywhere because she was completely paranoid of child murders and pedophiles and every horrible maybe this is why I'm a horror writer to this day or a horror writer today because my mother was always um and they did have high profile crimes in the areas where they lived in growing up and so I think that stuck with my my parents um we had we did have a cousin a younger cousin that was kidnapped in the 70s that was never covered um, my mother's neighbor was kidnapped and mutilated and her body wow. was left in her parents' garbage can later to her parents discover. So they, both of my parents have experiences with these very horrific things that happen to young children. And so there was growing up, there was always this, you can't go outside because someone will take you or someone will kill you. And so there was always this panic and this fear and then that coupled with my mother's like intense religious imagery and religious uh, feelings just kind of created like this huge sense of fear mm-hmm. in me. Well, but then I turned to things like horror movies as my friends because I mm-hmm. couldn't leave the house. So we in my other show, Psychoanalysis, um, Laura, Jen, and I talked briefly about the dichotomy between like true crime fans and horror movie fans and how 
like true crime to a lot of us that love horror almost feels a little bit icky and that mm. you're getting these real life tragedies turned into entertainment um, mm -hmm. where like horror, I can like, again, like my daughter said, like, dude cuts off his hand with a chainsaw and green shit comes out. And we're like, yeah, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, so it's like the, you're saying like my you can't see because my camera is not working, but like my face is gone. Like my jar is basically on the desk when you're like, yeah, my neighbor, my parents' neighbor was like found in their parents' trap. It's so heartbreaking where if you like put that in a horror movie, I'm like, that's the good shit right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just really horrible things that I just grew up with and and speaking about true crime and then I'll go on my true crime but I'm obsessed with true crime mm -hmm. I even did a lecture on it um here in Chicago recently about our obsession with true crime like are we you know how much are we playing into people's trauma into people's pain when we consume true crime and there's true mm -hmm. crime podcasts and true crime conventions and true crime cruises and it's mm -hmm. just like how can we justify that there's a lot of these murderers that are still not caught and we're like um really uh you know over i don't know is it over popularized i don't know so I, I just have a lot i have a lot of questions in my discussion mm -hmm. i don't really have answers but i just think it's really fascinating how um the true crime fandom has exploded you know i i live in the pacific northwest and um as i was growing up uh the big story that we didn't have closure on for you know 30 years was uh, Gary Ridgway, uh, the Green mm -hmm. River Killer. Uh, and that was just like a shadow that, that hung over this part of the country for decades, you know, just a really, really long time. Um, but, you know, at the, at the same, on the same token, I was, my upbringing is probably a little bit more like Mike. Uh, I was a latchkey kid for me and my brother were latchkey kids most of the time growing up. You know, both my parents worked and we'd just get off the bus and get home. And my mom would say, call, call me when you get home. And, 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 you know, then we saw everyone when they came home for dinner and that was about it, you know. Um, but, you know, even before that, when we went to the babysitter's house for a while after school, um, it was playing in the woods. It was not having that that kind of constant supervision. So that's, uh, um, I guess I'm somewhere in the middle on this one. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but yeah, it's it that that period of time. I mean, the the movie Summer of '84. You know that. Mm -hmm. that yeah. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it until I saw the uh, the you know, the little thumbnail for it. And it's a picture of a kid on a milk cart. Right. You know, and, and thinking about how ubiquitous that was at the time. Yes. I mean, that was every, I mean, every time, you know, hey, set the milk carton down on the table at dinner time, and there's, you know, some missing kid on, on the side of this thing. Oh. Um, and that was frightening, you know, and, and we would see things on Unsolved Mysteries about, you know, the paneled vans, you know, with no windows and uh, that are, picking kids up on the street. So there was a real fear of, of, of a lot of, of, of a Freddy Krueger kind of character mm -hmm. out there uh, in real life, you know, that, that could come and pick us up. Um, 
and that was sort of, I, I feel like that was sort of put down our throats to some extent, you know, it's like the, the stranger danger era. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. And we had police officers that would come to school and do remember presentations about strangers. Mm -hmm. I still do that, things like that. But I, I remember having those frequently that there would be a police officer that would come in and they do a presentation on safety and stranger danger. And I mean, there was videos on you know after school specials. This was mm -hmm. this was time of after school specials, right? With um, a lot of those warnings. Um, and I just remember, I remember the milk cartons, and I just remember also hearing the people say oh they were just a runaway they were just a runaway it's like really how many young children are just right. runaways that's i think that was just a way to maybe dismiss our fears of what really is out there and so you know freddie and maybe that's why some you know on the re-watching the elm streets as a mother now um i you know of course me i i love robert england i i've emailed him i've emailed his wife because I'm just so obsessed with him, and I just remember I couldn't see him at the last um, horror con that they had in Chicago, and I remember emailing him and just saying, I am so sorry, I've been dying to see you for years, and I just can't get away because I have two small boys, and my schedule's crazy, and you know, can I purchase an autograph? And so he sent me, his wife sent me like an autograph, you know, poster of him, and they also sent me like two pictures of him holding the autograph poster, and it was like, the most wonderful thing because I just remember, you know, watching Nightmare on the Streets when I was alone and Freddy's Nightmares. I mean, I watched all, all of the shows, even though they became cheesier and cheesier, but mm -hmm. he was, you know, just all monsters. And those were the things that I turned to because I didn't really, I was the strange kid. But seeing them now and just knowing the backstory, um, you know, will I have my kid watch it? Yes, but you know, the, the backstory is really terrifying. Like when you think about all of the merchandise and the promotional material that we were celebrating a child murderer, and I think ultimately we were just celebrating Robert England because he just took over that character and maybe the background of that character just kind of fell by the wayside. Maybe that's what happened, but it's really strange that society was so conservative at the point mm -hmm. in history, but we were just celebrating this child murder on lunchboxes. It's so strange. I found a clip of Robert England, and he's not in the Freddie makeup, but he's on Nickelodeon promoting the release of an album. And I think I'll either link to it or maybe I'll like dump it right here in the show because it's so fascinating. It's this kid's show in Nickelodeon and neither of the hosts look like they're 17 years old or could buy a ticket for an R-rated movie. And he's just like chatting away about what the movie, and to me it's so fascinating that you would see this, you know? Um, and look, I don't have a lot of good things to say about the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Um, Very few like, do. Do you know? I mean, <laughs> but like, there's no way that that Freddy Krueger gets on a lunchbox. And not just because of the quality of the movie, but like the way that character is written and what's presented. It gets to the heart of what Wes Craven wanted Freddy to be. But again, I've said this on each of the Elm Street episodes, Robert Englund is Freddy Krueger. No one can really, like, if you ever redo the Elm Street movies, 
you have to do them without Freddy. It has to be some sort of other being or, or creature or entity. It can't be Freddy because I don't think anyone's going to buy anyone but Robert in that role. Robert is just, I mean, he is, he is a living icon Mm -hmm. in our time. He is a horror icon and we're going to look back and he's what, 74, 75. Mm -hmm. And so I think as horror fans, um, he is our Boris Karloff. He is just, mm-hmm. I grew up with him. He is just such a big part of, and not just as Freddie, but even just, uh, you know, in Phantom of the Opera and, you know, other uh, V, you know, mm-hmm. sci-fi roles that he played. And he did 15 films even before um, the Nightmare uh, franchise. He's just a fantastic actor, but he is this role and he is a gem. And I love him and he is just the kindest man. Um, for entertaining <laughs> my requests and just, you know, I remember I wrote this long letter just telling him how much he meant to me mm-hmm. and just the response just to that simple fan letter was just wonderful. He, one of the things, I think the reason why Freddie worked so well is, is Robert Englund always was thinking about the character. He mm-hmm. was always like, would Freddie do this? Or he dives more into like, the psychosomatic sexual aspects of the character and he lends it an intellectual bent. Um, I think that it's not, it's not by accident that as the Friday the 13th movies go on and only focus on Jason Voorhees as a character and no longer really have this, like what works about the first four Friday movies is you really like the kids. Um, you know, I know Jerry's not here, so I'll say it. You take Jason out of, (laughs) you take Jason out out of the final final chapter chapter. and you do have a really good coming of age movie. Um, but by the time you get to a new blood and it just becomes about this generic group of kids who you don't even like, and you just want to see Jason mow them down. Yes, that's fun. But mm-hmm. it's like a nothing burger of a movie. Um, Michael Myers is too much of a blank slate. No one outside of Toby Hooper in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because that movie is not so much about Leatherface as it is the family, and right. every other movie in that series becomes about Leatherface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anglin yeah. has this intellectual bent, this seriousness to this craft, and the personality and larger than life persona to really like, you can make Freddie the central focal point because he is like so good in the role because he's mm-hmm. just such a talent. And I, and I agree that I agree definitely with all of that. And I know that Robert, you know, really wanted to work with Wes Craven um, just because Wes Craven just was such an intellectual and he was really making a, a big commentary about society and how we harm one another and I just really wanted to quickly say um, that I would almost characterize like the Nightmare franchise as like a modern fairy tale, mm-hmm. um, also modern fable that warns children that there are real life dangers out there in the real world. They're not. Yeah. We don't have trolls or werewolves or witches at the end of the world. We have child murderers. We have right. pedophiles. So you know, there's the reference of 
uh, when Neil says, you know, this is very Peter Pan-esque to, to, to Nancy. And then in Nightmare 4, the character's name is Alice. And then there's, I think Freddy says, Alice, you're no longer in Wonderland. And so I think there is something to be said that this is a, you know, when we look at the really grim of the Grimm's fairy tales, this is a very grim modern warning about the horrible things that are out there in the world. Yeah. And of course, New Nightmares is very directly a fairy tale. Uh, you know, with so many Hansel and Gretel references, you know, from beginning to end in that movie. Um, I just watched that one with my son, who's 10, and boy, that one played like gangbusters. I did mm -hmm. not expect him to like that one at all. Excellent. But uh, boy, he loved it uh, almost as much as the first. And on that line about these being cautionary movies ex about the real world terrors that are out there it's also a cautionary tale for children that your parents aren't always right yeah. your parents are fallible and i think I, I forget i i think jerry and i talk about this on our color out of space episode for our patrons where we talk about that first time you no i talked about this with a client i'm sorry the first time you realize your parents make mistakes Mm. you're not infallible is a really scary moment and these mm. movies are preparing you that with the failures of parents over and over again like look as children as adolescents as young adults you need to figure things out for yourself it's not always going to be told to you by your parents and that's one of my favorite aspects of, of the first film uh is the role reversal between Marge and Nancy. And that. Yes. That is, that is just brilliant. Where it, where it starts with, you know, very much the mother-daughter dynamic, but then Nancy so much becomes the mother and, you know, to the point where she's tucking yep. her mother into bed at the yeah. end of the movie. I, it, it's just heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's one of the most... I think it's one of the smartest and most beautiful things Wes Craven put into that film. Right. So I think that's a really good note. As much as I could talk about any of these movies for days, that's not fair to my guests. We all have fun. <laughs> um, so I think that is going to wrap up our discussion on Elm Street 3 there. Although I will say, after we sign off, do stick around because we do have Patrick Hamilton from Kill by Kill, who I was able to chat with for a little bit. Um, about um, Craig Fasson and Dr. Neil Gordon. Because if you've listened to the Kill by Kill podcast, they cover Elm Street 3 for weeks. And they go so hard on that character that I just had to have him on and, and ask about where that comes from. It just, just was great. And also my daughter Ada will be back on to talk about her thoughts on Elm Street 3. Uh, and her thoughts will put all of film Twitter to shame. Um, all right. So to our guest, Brian, what do you have coming up? Like, what are your, you just mentioned an article that just posted on bloody about, um, developmental horror, but what else are you working on right now? And where can our readers find you? Yeah, well, uh, I want to just a couple of things that are kind of cool. I've had a couple articles, uh, go up with bloody disgusting this month, uh, that I, and, uh, that I think are, kind of fun. <laughs> um, one is, it's called Kinder Trauma Generation. I kind of went into that one a little bit. Um, I wrote another one about uh, Bride of Frankenstein and um, sort of the evolution of that particular horror icon. Um, I have something else 
that I got confirmation on today from John that I can't go into, but uh, do watch uh, Bloody Disgusting for something that I think is, that I'm really excited about. That Very cool. Very cool. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, also, um, I, I continue to write for Manor Vellum, uh, which has been, uh, it's a just, it's a small site, but they've got some really, I, I also want to talk, say, check, check out uh, medium.com slash at Manor Vellum. And there are some really terrific articles there from okay. just a wide variety of, of really interesting writers. Uh, Right now, uh, Rock uh, has been really focusing on getting a lot of, of women who write about horror um, mm -hmm. on the site and uh, bringing that perspective. And I'm, I, I just love what I'm seeing on that site. And uh, I personally have a, have a personal piece up there uh, about the descent uh, and how it relates to um, my history with depression. Uh, and I have another piece coming up uh, in a couple of weeks there on the movie Targets, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich's mm -hmm. movie. Um, and yeah, so those, those are the big things. And um, I'm, I'm just kind of really excited about some of the stuff that's coming out. Pretty cool. And our, for, if our listeners want to follow you, once again, where can they go? Uh, you can go on Twitter uh, at Brian D. Kuiper. Uh, Kuiper is spelled K-E-I-P-E-R. Mm -hmm. um, and would... Yeah, uh, a lot of my, all my writing uh, gets posted there and if, you know, if you're interested in that. Excellent. And Cynthia, tell us about your, your work. You have uh, a few books out. Your, a lot of your poetry is on your site and it's really wonderful. Like before mm -hmm. I contacted you, I'm like, I want to like read some of these. There's like a gorgeous pieces up there. Um, oh. But where can, uh, what, um, what is the Children of Chicago? It looks like is that a collaboration with a number of authors or? Children of Chicago, um, that is my, not, it has been, it's my, my debut in adult horror novel. That oh, cool. will be, yeah, so I've written young adult horror mm -hmm. um, and I write poetry. Um, I'm also finishing a PhD in psychology, so I've been really, wow. really busy. But um, my my novel Children of Chicago is a modern day retelling of the Pied Piper fairy tale. So we're going back to my obsession oh, fairy tales. Um, uh, you know, modern fairy tales, modern warnings that takes place in Chicago, and it's a commentary on the crime that that we see. And it will feature my boogeyman, um, my modern day retelling of the Pied Piper. So that will be out in February by Agora Polis Books. And I've also published um, quite a few mystery and um, thriller and horror articles, I'm sorry, short stories with uh, Polis Books, other things that I have coming out. I have an article coming out, um, an essay in the Southwest Review for Halloween, which is about my experiences and with the supernatural and it's titled I want to believe and it takes like the whole you know uh, Fox Mulder's I want to believe and just a discussion about people who want to believe in other the other things and the other side so that will be out in October I have a true crime poetry collection coming out soon speaking of true crime interesting okay I also write for lit reactor when I have time so if anyone's interested in like the mechanics of writing that's typically what I write for lit reactor like the mechanics of writing or just kind of like 
especially now, you know, with so much going on, um, I've, I've just been writing articles about like how do we process writing under you know high stress um, conditions. So, a few things. How do you do this going for your PhD? Because I know like just getting my master's in counseling nearly killed me. Like that it, second year with internships, like I yeah. didn't do anything except that. How are you getting all this out? I've almost died. <laughs> it's insane. Well, you know, my, my PhD is uh, in business psychology. I, mm -hmm. I, and I do, and I, on top of all of this, I do have a day job. <laughs> So um, I work in research uh, by day, um, and so thankfully, you know, my courses have been online at night, and then mm -hmm. I've had to go on-site for residencies, and so I finished all my coursework, I finished my comp exams, I just have my dissertation, and my dissertation chair keeps chasing after me, but I keep, like, delaying mm -hmm. things because I have so many fantastic horror and writing opportunities that I really want to take advantage of so I mean it's been hard and I'm thankful that my husband has helped out tremendously mm -hmm. but I wouldn't recommend this to right. unless you have and before the pandemic my mother she lives a block away and she would help tons with tons with the boys um, we're kind of staying away from them just because we want to keep them safe but mm -hmm. I had a lot of support so and a lot of coffee and a lot of lack of sleep so I mean it can be done it's very difficult and very stressful right. how have you seen the publishing world change during this pandemic I know that we talked to Jay Blake Fischera who has a sequel to score to death coming out and he talked a bit about like his show partner having some like of his work pushed back because of the pandemic and the fear of everything kind of coming out at once. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen anything like that or has it affected anything? There, I mean, there's been, I think we've just tried to adapt to it. There's been a lot of um, people are, are turning to the virtual book launches and there's been a lot of, um, uh, we've moved a lot of conventions uh, online there's um, a charity horror convention called scares that cares that we raise um, mm -hmm. the charity raises money for families in need and that went that had to go online uh, the horror writers association their convention was essentially canceled um, I usually go to that and so we'll see what will happen next year but in terms of like book launches I think some publishers have, you know, they kind of just decided that, I mean, this is the new normal for now. And so books are being launched. I think there's a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of opportunity for articles because people are home, people are reading a lot. And so I feel like if you're a fiction writer or a journalist, um, there are good opportunities right now to get work out there. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's been nice. I haven't seen a stall in the work. I feel like there's been a lot of, there's been a boom of creative energy right now, mm -hmm. which I'm happy that people are taking, you know, this time of tension and uncertainty and they're putting it towards art. Right. And you being born and raised in Chicago, I'm going to probably phrase this question awkwardly, so I apologize. What are your thoughts on, it seems like Chicago always becomes the boogeyman city for violence, unfairly. <laughs> um, whenever you hear especially when it comes around, say, the topic of gun control. Mm -hmm. like, well, Chicago has the strictest 
gun laws in the country and like look at all the shootings that go on there and it seems like everything boils down to this like not realizing like hey it's pretty easy to bring in guns from other towns and cities around it not like they're manufactured and given out there how does it like how does the city handle that and that perception when when i think of chicago i think of like the fireside bowl and the cubs and like Preaching Weasel and the Bow Weevils and Naked Ray Gun and all these amazing punk bands and the art scene from there um, and the music box. Um, oh. How do you like? It's such a love hate relationship. Like I live here, it's home. Um, I'm not, you know, going to lie. I've been, you know, uh, you know, I've had, you know, it's really an, it's terrifying scares here in the city myself. Um, you know, you can conceal carry in Chicago. You, I have a FOID card. Um, my brothers are both veterans and they have their concealed carry uh, license and they have, um, you know, they're responsible gun owners. Uh, you know, unfortunately over the border um, and to, you know, other states, it's easily to, you know, purchase um, guns without um, licenses. But I think in terms of like in the city area and in the city limits, we do have a really good responsible gun owners uh, in terms of the violence I mean growing up I can, I can talk all, you know, all night about this you know but growing up in the 80s and 90s it was a scary place but people didn't solve their issues with guns back then I remember people would kind of beat each other up and then just move about their day um, but there was um, the decentralization of a lot of major gangs in the late 90s early 2000s and then they kind of they kind of splintered off so almost in some neighborhoods there's like from block to block there's different gangs mm -hmm. and so it's a lot of gang and drug crime and unfortunately it spills out into you know other neighborhoods other parts of the city i mean even even communities that have high gang problems it's very heartbreaking um you know, I have family members who, you know, are, are officers and, you know, they're overworked and they're stressed. And, you know, I think community policing is very important in Chicago, but there is a huge level of fear for um, talking, for fear of retaliation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that, you know, we were really trying to work towards that. I mean, I, I'm very involved with my, you know, beat meetings and, you know, talking to the, my neighborhood police officers who are great, but it's, it's a lot of drug crime. Um, it's really, it really stems from a lot of uh, drug, drug crimes. And it's, um, it is concentrated in some neighborhoods more than others, but it does then seep out into the other right. areas of the city. And, uh, one of the main reasons, I mean, I used to, years of, years and years ago, I used to even volunteer at Cabrini Green, um, tutoring there, and these are some of the greatest kids I've ever worked with um, in my life, and so I think that areas in Chicago are very, are lacking in community, and, and uh, opportunities, jobs, education, I mean, even good areas to get food in some neighborhoods, so it's a very difficult and complicated problem. I love this city, which is one of the main reasons I've stayed here to, to be able to serve as a good role model for the kids in the neighborhood. The food, the, the lack of quality food and the lack of quality health and nutrition is, is one of the biggest obstacles for communities to come out of poverty. I know that I work in a school district as a counselor where I live in a right to farm town it's this little suburban town and you drive 
my commute is less than six minutes to the school where we have 18,000 students on free lunch. We decided as a district years ago, we're never going to let hunger be, as best we can, hunger be a obstacle to them getting an education. So mm-hmm. we don't do reduced lunches. Like we're never going to shame a, per- a family for not okay. being able to afford you know, the lunches. So we just feed 18,000 breakfast and lunches a day. And during this pandemic, it's been so hard. Like we try to, we still, even through the summer, offered the breakfast, lunch, and snacks. And, but trying to get families to get to the schools, to get them. And, and I know like when we go back, we're going remote. And I don't know how we're going to do things like the backpacks of extra food that I get, we give out to certain families on weekends so that they would have enough to eat on Saturday and Sunday. Like I've worked with my other counselors on my team, like how are we going to do this? Um, So like when you said nutrition, like that really hit home in terms of like, how do we solve this real inequality that it's just such an obstacle for kids to get, to rise up and get, but sorry to bring everybody down. I know we're like, <laughs> I could go on often. These topics are ours, but so to our list, thanks Cynthia and Brian. Thank you so much. Um, Cynthia, when this next book comes out, like pick a movie you want to talk about and we'll do a one-off and help promote this book. Um, and anytime you want to come on any other franchises you feel strongly about, like let's stay in touch and definitely have you yeah. on repeatedly like you're on the short list brian you know you're on our short list so anything <laughs> well, i always love coming and talking to you guys right so for our <laughs> listeners we hope that you have enjoyed this jerry i was gonna say i hope you enjoy this jerry free week but that would not be that would be <laughs> oh, no that's not how i <laughs> we miss you jerry we do. we do miss jerry and what's funny is like jerry doesn't love this movie like mm. jerry is not so i would be i think um It'll be interesting. I want to get his thoughts on it a little. It'll maybe do that as a little like add-on or bonus we release next weekend. Um, so for our listeners, like our second Patreon episode will be up by the time this goes up. So joining It Follows in the library will be our thoughts on A Color Out of Space. Um, Jerry talks about sex magic during this show, which is something. Um, I talk about cage rage and tinkle tinkle toot and everybody poops. So really for like $2 a month, get your butt over to, um, the pod and the pendulum over on Patreon, um, help support our show. We're going to, we're talking about doing recaps of Lovecraft country, like maybe 30 minute recaps for just the patrons. Um, Jerry is at, we basically, Jerry has been contacting a number of um, participants in the Elm Street series. We're going to be doing some interviews and one-on-ones with them. And for our patrons, we're going to put those up first individually before combining them into a bonus episode for everyone, but you'll get first access to it. The Slack channel is going. I've been lax on the blog post, but we're going to be adding more and more stuff there. So Give us your two bucks a month at least, you sons of bitches. Uh, or so help me God. I don't know. I don't know. I got nothing. All right. This is Mike over at the Pod and the Pendulum. Follow us at Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. Follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Dream Master, the first of our two shows on that. And um, in the meantime, stick around for a little more content. Play. 
Where do you keep the bourbon? I'll be right down. Chris, I've got a guest. Please, Mom, I just don't want to be alone. I said, where's the fucking bourbon? Hey everyone, it is Mike from The Pod and The Pendulum again with a little bonus content for our Nightmare Elm, on Elm Street Part 3, the Dream Warriors episode, because, I mean, honest to God, I could do a whole podcast on just the Elm Street series, so I'm going to cram as much content as I can into this before we go back to doing, like, the urban legends of the world. Um, so I am joined by a really special guest that I have on for one very specific reason tonight. Um, he is the co-host, along with Gina Radcliffe, of the Kill by Kill podcast. Uh, we have on with us Patrick Hamilton. Patrick, how are we tonight? Oh, we're doing wonderful in, in these pandemic times. Woohoo! It's, how, are, uh, how are you freaking... holding up during all this? <laughs> you know, uh, listen, I, there's a lot of things to complain about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very lucky in many respects. It would be nice if I got to work again. But hey, mm-hmm. you like at some point, they're going to risk somebody's life to film a TV show, and then I'll get yeah. to promote it. Fantastic. What is it you do in your daytime work? Like, how do you... Um, we, uh, my wife and I are writing team and we work for primarily television networks, but occasionally a movie studio. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we, uh, promote entertainment. So if you want uh, a character from a show to speak on camera, um, but not as that character, maybe sometimes as that character, just, just something outside the the exact scope of the show, Mm -hmm. we write that. Excellent. Okay. uh, And on top of that, other marketing materials like social media posts and copy that goes on posters and one sheets and uh, all that sort of jazz. Uh, Whatever, whatever writing is outside the scope of the show, but promotes the show. That's what we do. Okay. Excellent. So you guys are hitting really hard right now because obviously no one's filming no one's filming anything like uh, there's and a bunch of shows were about to start in Vancouver and then they uh, hit a snag because Vancouver's numbers are so low that the unions up there are saying we don't need to test every week whereas unions down here like well it's crazy and we have to have the same rules Mm -hmm. for every single union member so that's what's stopping things that's how badly we're doing in america we're stopping foreign production companies from making american television this could be a show in and of itself and i know you have a super limited amount of time um and i'll throwing it out there right now you and gina let us know a series that you haven't tackled that you would like to come on and talk about because there's an open invite for the kill by kill crew to always come on the pod and the pendulum we would you know, love it so yeah i mean uh, i'll tell you right now I, I think we're gonna avoid the majority of the halloweens <laughs> we covered them already so we <laughs> yeah, got them. Covered we them got them, yeah. um uh, yeah i mean uh everything else is kind of scattershot it would just mm-hmm. really depend on what it is uh, to be honest with you um, we've changed our minds about yeah. what we've wanted to do with the show. Mm-hmm. We've just really enjoyed the freedom of not being tied to a franchise yeah. after 
two and a half years of Friday the 13th and a year plus of The Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street. As much as I love those movies. It's fatiguing. It's just, it's a lot. And, and you begin to take it a little too seriously. Mm-hmm. Or, and especially the way we break it down in terms of we're always looking for the smallest, weirdest right. detail we can find. Um, because that's where the comedy gold is. Right. Uh, we're not. We're not a super serious. <laughs> and yeah. I'll say, like, I had the idea to do the pod and the pendulum type of show where we only cover franchises when I was in grad school, and I'm like, we're gonna start this when I graduate. It'll be so unique. And then I found Kill by Kill and Halloweenies like a month <laughs> before, and I really have you want to say fuck you guys, all right? <laughs> Well, listen, it wasn't for a lack of trying to get this started mm. sooner. Everyone in town told me that podcasting was going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would do nothing for my career. And I, my response was, I'm not doing this for a career. <laughs> I want to talk about the weirdness of Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And my wife told me, stop talking to me mm-hmm. about it. Yes. Find someone else. And so she I won't. Think, she won't wear the Jason mask during not anymore. Thinking. No, it, listen, it all the magic, uh, you it's know, gone. loses its luster it's after gone. a little while. My wife makes me wear the part two mask. She sure. makes me wear the potato sack. Well, listen, you know. it's a very virile uh, woodsman underneath there, so I get it. <laughs> you know, that's an aesthetic. I, I'm absolutely. not above. Listen, when that when Muffin the dog looks up at Jason, and Jason looks down from the POV of his penis. <laughs> and then which is where the a camera is placed for some reason mm-hmm. i still cannot explain mm-hmm. um it's it sets off something primal in people I steve it. minor makes some choices he does he, he loves penis, butts. Yeah. Penis and he's the hell of third the act director like mm-hmm. those third acts are, are, are great yeah absolutely so the reason we wanted to have you on patrick is i noticed a trend when i was listening to your elm street part three series and mm. number of episodes and i noticed this some would say almost pathological <laughs> show me on the doll where craig watson hurt you <laughs> so i um <laughs> yeah i don't i didn't go into it thinking that craig mm-hmm. watson would become enemy number one mm-hmm. but i also up until the point that we started watching that movie again i didn't remember how much of the movie focuses for reasons I cannot explain mm-hmm. on Craig Watson. And that I think is really my main beef because mm-hmm. if you were to ask anybody, like what's dream warriors about? Oh, it's about these kids and they live in, you know, they're in a mental institution and it turns out like they've all been scared by Freddie in their dreams and they're the last kids of Elm street. And then Nancy shows up and she's like, we can fight back and then they get superpowers and it's a big battle to the end. And then they win. No one mentions Craig Watson. No, like he's, he's, but if you were to line up, if you were to take every line of dialogue or every scene where Craig Watson is given all the screen time, he's the main character of Dream Warriors. Right. Why? Why is this like dish sponge granted the breath of life? <laughs> the main character in this movie. And it it has more to do with me with like loving. There's so much to love about Dream Warriors. Yes. Like this is a this is a, a tiny thing. It's not that big of a deal because again, people don't remember it. But it's super weird 
that so much of the you know screen time is spent like building Craig Wasson up. Does Craig Wasson believe the kids? Does Craig Wasson believe Nancy? Is Craig Wasson meeting a ghost nun? Who who cares? Right. It's like, not Nancy that meets Amanda Kruger. It's Craig Wasson for reasons to be determined. To me. Like who made? Like there's so much of that movie that's so good. There's no point to this character being there, and it speaks of like this weird patriarchal like mandate. Like we gotta have a male authority figure here who needs to be convinced that this dream demon is real it's like fucking why it's the third movie in this franchise like there's a lot of good movie here no one is going to think well i i listen i loved it with that giant penis monster pick you know rosanna arquette up off the ground and right. her into the wood but what i really loved was craig wasson right it's when it's when Craig Wasson tosses John Saxon R.A.P. around at a ragdoll, you know, that's really, that's what's bringing me to, that's what the milkshake that bringing the boys to the yard. Yes. Like what, where in the world is John fucking Saxon going to be braced by Craig Wasson? No. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. And weirdly enough, like, there's a person in the movie who carries more weight and would have been better in this role. And that's Lawrence Fishburne. Of course. Larry Fishburne would have been great in this role. Who we remember and, so much more. Remember Larry yeah. Fishburne. Well, he Lawrence. jumps off the screen. Yeah. He's got charisma for mm-hmm. days. He's Larry Fishburne. And, and for some reason, they're like, ah, get me that goofus. And he, no one remembers from Ghost Story. Like, and what I don't get is Nancy Thompson or Heather Langenkamp is supposed to have this big arc with her dad. Like there's this reunion. You see, like it's not a ton of exposition, but when you see John Saxon, he's no longer a lieutenant. You see that he's like drunk. He's wearing a uniform that says security and that's all that has to be said. And instead of having this like emotional reunion with the two characters, you have... Craig Wasson, Bill Maher's stunt double, basically, <laughs> basically tossing John Saxon around a junkyard saying, you know, you're getting him killed in the process, yeah. getting Lieutenant Thompson killed. So he basically, Craig Wasson has the blood of Nancy and Lieutenant yeah. Thompson on his hands. Who is going to stop Craig Wasson from killing again? <laughs> I, 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 I need someone to explain what the point was of like let's say you you need craig wasson for whatever reason your justification is like you need uh, an empty suit you know a skull that wears hair just be the head of this group of kids who doesn't believe and slowly over the course of the movie gets up close and personal with something he can't explain through science not the worst idea but it, what really drives it home is that they send Nancy, who last time beat Fred Krueger in the real world, into the dream. Mm-hmm. And Craig Wasson stays outside, who, as you mentioned, ends up getting John Saxon killed. Wouldn't it make more sense 
for Craig Wasson to finally be the person these kids need in the dream world, the place that he says doesn't exist, right? This thing is a delusion. It's a shared delusion. It, it's all, all it is doing is reinforcing your psychosis. It would be much better thematically to put him in the dream world to confront that with them and maybe make the ultimate sacrifice for them so that more of them survive. Right. And Nancy beat Freddy in the real world and die in, as an end result right. of that and, and have that catharsis with John or have Saxon die in her like right there's a you don't have to kill nancy movie. at all you know yeah. and i think there's been like a re-evaluation of like nancy's death and be in how that kind of robs her a bit of her you know unlike a laurie strode who lives you know like we retconned we retconned resurrection for a reason people yeah not because mm-hmm. you know it's fantastic and you want to build on it um so you didn't have to kill nancy at all and what's incredible is the three surviving teen characters of elm street three all come back to be killed in the first act of part four which we'll get yeah. to over two mm-hmm. episodes soon um mm-hmm. but craig wasson never to return again now why would you no. there's there's nothing <laughs> why would there's you? Nothing, i mean it's he's so unmemorable in the role and there's a bet like there's again this doesn't take anything away from dream warriors it's a great movie it's photographed beautifully there's so many wonderful set pieces it's so imaginative it's still visceral in the way that you want a nightmare movie to be like there's great visceral jarring emotional death scenes it's not all weird wheelchairs and hallways it can't all be great um but the craig wasson thing could have served a better purpose and it doesn't help that he's just like a members only jacket Mm -hmm. on loan you know because the restaurant says you can't come in in a t-shirt it's just he's so useless and perfunctory I don't understand why he's given the heft of meeting Amanda Kruger or making that discovery or anything along these lines. These are all things that should have been put on Nancy's plate. Right. And I do wonder who in this decision-making process, New Line Cinema, decided they had to absolutely have the swinging dick in the middle of the movie right. because it's, it was not necessary before, or they said in the aftermath of part two, yeah, it didn't work to, in part two. Right. Well, <laughs> I would I say Mark two. Patton is actually very affecting in that role. Mm-hmm. I, I am a part two defender. Oh, I it's enjoy my third favorite. It's yeah. my third favorite in the series. And I, think they didn't give and we're going to talk about this this week in our show well we're going back in time now so mm-hmm. never mind but like <laughs> you did the, talk the, about the this, first yeah. three things you see in with jesse is like he looks like a dweeb in his dream he screams like a ninny when he wakes up he gets hit on the head with a baseball checking out a girl and then he gets pantsed like shoulder and chaskin did this character taking the queerness of the character out of the picture in 1985, just from a like, 
how they treat him in the first 10 minutes of the movie, they did him no favors. Like if you're an 18 year old dude, you're going to look at that character and be like, I do not see myself in him. Why am I watching this? Give me more of Lisa right now. <laughs> uh, yes. I, 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 I can, I can see that, but at least in, in that circumstance, I think if they were there, or there is an attempt to make him sort of a character from an Archie comic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, he's kind of hapless and he's the new kid in town. <laughs> and he's cute as a button, but he just can't help himself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's of another era. It seems right. out of step. Whereas, you know, that first Nightmare film is is so, it's a, a, the, uh, it transcends and everyone time. hates it touches the zeitgeist yeah. it transcends time where freddy's revenge is very mired in 1985 yeah elm street the original transcends time i know you're super pressed for time so we'll cut it there i just bring things back to larry fishburne yeah. tell us what you're doing you're covering the hannibal show now yes. episode by episode yes um we were we were you know, it's a pandemic. I don't know if that's come across your news desk. Is that what's going uh, on? <laughs> yeah, a pandemic. Yeah. Um, but we were doing some bonus stuff uh, just because we, we could. Uh, and then we were we were like looking for something that would be fun to talk about that didn't necessarily step on what our normal range was. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, Hannibal shows up on Netflix. And I'm like... I want to rewatch Hannibal. Mm. And Gene's like, I would rewatch Hannibal. I'm like, well, let's just talk about it. We'll, we'll drop the episodes on our off weeks. And mm-hmm. you know, they're small, they're unedited. They're just fun little discussions. We're not getting as deep as we do necessarily on kill by kill, but there's just as many weird interruptions and tangents. And it's fun to revisit such a well made piece of TV. It is truly a testament uh, to the creators there. It, it is not, no part of it feels dated or out of step or out of touch. There are episodes where I'm, uh, that scare me to the bone or just freak me out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really such a good series and everything you want peak TV, TV to be. So, while we tend to cover uh, on the main feed, you know, the less spectacular versions of right. motion pictures. The Dr. Giggles of the world. <laughs> hey, listen, Dr. Giggles transcended my, my expectations, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, but we like it when, when movies play a little fast and loose. Mm-hmm. We, we like them when they're not as, as clean. And... But Hannibal, man, everything has a purpose. It is just a great show. And, and it was I'm on loving... network television, which blows yes. my mind. Network TV, where you could find network TV at this time. Where you great. could find that. It was and to me, uh, Mads Middleson is he is Hannibal Lecter. He's trans he's replaced Anthony Hopkins to me as the definitive version of And a lot of big part of that is because um, they're not sort of redoing what you had already seen. This is such a new view of Mm -hmm. him and the character and that world and allowing it to breathe on its own and trying to tell a different story just with characters you already know or are culturally aware of. It's, 
it's what Castle Rock wants to be, but hasn't quite kind of hit. I don't think Castle Rock has really hit that stride. Like the, taking the, the second season through. came very, very close though. That yeah. first season was wiggy. Mm-hmm. The second, that second one though, boy, they found something, a thread and it became what it really did as much as Hannibal condenses Harris down to his operatic extremes mm-hmm. and his decadence that second season of Castle Rock creates that town slowly going crazy mm. thing from Stephen King. And you're like, ooh, I like that. You might have found your groove. Uh, I, I, I want to see more of that. I'll have um, to re-pick it up. We got three episodes in and I tapped out on season two. Oh, I, I would. Mm, there's right. some good stuff. It, right. it really is. It right. really picks up there at the end. And then when it, that camper, bit, ooh. All right, we'll smoking. pick it up. We'll pick it up. So, yeah. Patrick, I know you got to get moving here. Tell our listeners where they can find you in Kill by Kill. Not your home address, of course. <laughs> but where they can. Uh, we, we've got an orange fence. Um, uh, Kill by Kill, we're available anywhere you, you pick up your podcasts. Um, and if you want to find us on socials, we're at Kill by Kill Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook uh, group where we talk about the movies and uh, Hannibal in greater detail. We have an Instagram. Um, and you know, those are the places to reach out to us if you want to. But uh, listen to the show. Check us out. We're fun. Well, thank you so much. And again, the invite is there for both you and Gina. Anytime you want on, you guys say the word. We'll reach out uh, blindly and say, hey, are you interested in any of these movies? And it would always be a pleasure to get to talk to you folks. Let's make these wonder twin powers activate. activate. Listeners, we hope you guys have enjoyed a little bit of extra content. We have a little bit more for you because now I'm going to bring my 10-year-old onto the show and we're going to close things with her thoughts on her all-time favorite movie at the moment, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. I'm not sure if that's a parenting win or a parenting fail, but we're going (laughs) to... I think we're all right. So a little bit of both. A little bit of both. All right. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Three, two, one. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the pod and the pendulum. Just when you didn't think we could talk about. A Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors anymore. I am back with who? Me. Who the hell is me? <laughs> me. Oh, God. I'm Introduce Ada. yourself. You know, because some people might be listening to the show for the first time. They don't know who you are. So you're <laughs> Well, Ada. I can deal with it. What are your... Jeez, you're going to drive our <laughs> listeners away. We're going to go from having a thousand people listen to this to like six. <laughs> And four of them will be me and the pets. All right. So who are you? I'm Ada, his daughter. All right. And what are we here to talk about? Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah. So give us your thoughts on this movie, Ada. Let our listeners know. Is this movie worth seeing? Yes. All right. So what did you like about it? I liked that... Okay. That there is a bigger group of people, and that Nancy from the first movie was also in there. Mm-hmm. I also liked that they were like in an insane asylum because people thought they were insane. Yeah. So were they insane? 
No. Well, they actually, to be honest, had something called nightmare disorder, which is a real mental illness. A nightmare disorder is when you have persistent bad dreams for like at least a week, usually more than a month. But I don't think you usually go to a mental asylum because of that. How were they treated at the mental asylum? Um, what do you mean by that? Well, do they seem to like being there, or were they like, uh, this is not where we want to be? Well, nobody really wants to be in a mental asylum in mm -hmm. the first place. True. Okay. So, so no. what did you think of Nancy coming back? I loved it. In the second movie, it was just like, yeah, she's in the same asylum. But, um, I like that she was, um, dealing with dreams in the mental asylum. Mm -hmm. And were you surprised she came back? Yes. Yeah. So, and then what happens to her at the end? She dies. Yeah, she dies. And she really died making the movie. They really killed her. I don't think they did. You don't think so? No. Have you ever seen her in anything else? <laughs> no. All right, then. What does that tell you? She's dead. So, what did you like? How did Freddy compare in this movie compared to the second one? In the second one, um, it was more Freddy, like, I don't know, it was this weird possession thing, but it wasn't really possession. I don't, I didn't get that. Mm -hmm. And he was just, like, kind of possessed this kid and ran around and killed people for the entire mm -hmm. movie. But that one, yes, he can still, like, do things like that. But I think it's only, like, in the puppet scene mm -hmm. where he takes control of one of the puppets. Mm-hmm. It could be more, but then I, I so, don't remember it. Are you saying and they there did are more a lot dreams more. in this one? Yeah, I like the dreams. Those are like my favorite part. And then the so, second one, where they pretty much took the dreams away. Yeah. I was really disappointed that there were no no more dreams. So what were some of the good dreams in this movie? Hmm. Let me think. The puppet one. Hater, our audience doesn't want to hear you think. Okay. They want your opinions. <laughs> Come on, you got to be quicker than this. All right. My God. People are like, time's a-wasting over here, you know. I'm listening to this on my way to work. Time's a-wasting while you're saying time's a-wasting. You're grounded. <laughs> so there was the dream where he was like the puppet master, right? And he had all the guys with his veins coming out and yeah. the strings. And, that was cool. Yeah. What about the TV one? Do you remember that one? Yeah, and then he like takes their head and... And shows, this is your big break in TV. Yeah. And shoves it in. Mm hmm He could have been a dad because he has unlimited dad jokes. What? So that's <laughs> the thing. Yeah, he has un So do I tell a lot of dad jokes? Yes. Well, I'm allowed to. I'm a dad. Um, whose jokes are better, dad's or mom's? <laughs> so remember, mom told the doc joke today. Oh, yeah. We were getting yours. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the dream one. Yeah. So... Does that is Freddy a lot funnier in this movie than the other ones? Yes. Yeah. So you're gonna have to get used to that because as again in the second one he's not really funny, but in the third one he's he just doesn't care. It's Vacation yeah. Freddy. Va what's Vacation Freddy? I don't know, Freddy. Describe that is that. not in the second movie. This isn't working, Freddy. This is Vacation Freddy. <laughs> yeah. I don't quite understand what that means. <laughs> I don't know either. Oh, boy. That is a description I have never heard of Freddy Krueger before. So, yeah, I think you're going to have to get used to it because he makes a lot of jokes in the next movie. Pretty much that's his thing from here on in. So Yeah. What else was good about Dream Warriors? Um, what else was good about Dream Warriors? Um... 
I liked the that uh, there were more people. Like I mm -hmm. say again, there's a lot more people instead of one person having a dream. Like one main character, there's a handful of people. Yeah. So all the kids have different dreams? Yeah. And what did those kids do when they had a dream? Did they have special what? Um, one of these kids says, I have, oh wait, this is my dream so I can control it, but it horribly backfires for him. Yeah, but what were they having? They had super what? Creepy dreams. Super creepy dream, but superpowers, right? Yeah, they had superpowers. They super had like powers. the wizard master and the dude who was strong. Yeah, the dude who's. That's really it when you think about it. You know, one yeah. girl was looking like a punk rocker with like switch blades. Hell yeah! I don't know what your superpower is for that, but sure. Having so, knives. So where do you think this movie compares with the other Elm Streets? I really like this one more than the other Elm Streets. Yeah. I don't know. I just I I like it. I like that there's more people and more dreams. Yeah. And I like how the plot's interesting. Not a lot of horror movies like go in that direction. Yeah. I love I love it, and that we get to see the first one and then. You can watch the third one and see what happened to mm -hmm. Nancy. What do you think makes A Nightmare on Elm Street different from, say, Friday the 13th? Oh my. Um, when, what, when was the first time I watched a Friday the 13th movie? You were home sick from school one day, so we started to watch part two, and you got bored about 30 minutes into it. Yeah, there was nothing happening, and like, how many people died? Like one? Like, at that point, a few. But, like, I think, like, a dozen die overall. Yeah, but the thing what I didn't like about it is just one dude gets a mask, gets a knife from a machete, mm -hmm. and, go, and he walks around this camp, and he kills people for, mm -hmm. like, an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. So those are kind of boring? There's no, not really, like, I didn't like how there wasn't really a plot. It's just a dude mm -hmm. killing people. Yeah. And what makes Elm Street different from that? It's not just a dude killing people. It's like a psych. It has a story about this um about this guy man named Freddy Krueger who killed children, and then the afterlife he possessed people, and mm -hmm. they had this whole insane asylum thing. I love it. Okay, so you and I are gonna go watch uh, the Dream Master now, part Hell four, yeah. and then we'll record on that after. Okay, I think you're gonna really if you like part three. And you like all the dreams, I think you're gonna really like part four. I I think I watched another one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but I only remember this one death where a lady was a cockroach. I think that's the one we're watching. Okay. Right. I don't remember anything other than that. And also yeah. this is like I've been looking away from the camera a lot because Niblets is being cute. Also Niblets is our Niblets is our bunny and Dusty is our cat. of a nightmare on Elm Street's Dream Warriors. Oh, that lined up pretty nice. That wasn't even intended. We'll be back next week with Dream Master, the first of two episodes on that epic fan favorite. Till then, 